listening to the Legendary Wrestling Obsession Podcast with your hosts, Corey Draper and Jeff Hughes. What a bastard! Didn't know what happened to him there. My word, Anderson can't believe that he's beside himself with anger. And Tully Blanchard is beside himself almost unconscious. Good down-home cheating. Good down-home good down cheating. Sure. Welcome to the premiere edition of the Legendary Wrestling Obsession Podcast. I'm Corey Draper. I've got Jeff Hughes here with me. We're really glad you've come back for this week if you've heard the preview episode, because we're going to be talking about Saturday night's main event. Oh yeah! I'm talking about the Macho Man. Yeah, Jeff couldn't make it today. Yeah, stepping in. Electrified. Yeah. <laughs> Just kidding. No, this is Jeff Hughes here, and excited to have our inaugural premiere season number one super special coming at you so before we get we have so much to set at the table we have a lot of stuff to get through before we can even get to actually talking about the card we have to set it all up but before we really get there jeff i just wanted to kind of just have a broader conversation about like what did saturday night's main event mean to you what did you think of it it was really incredible to have wrestling back especially in the uh late saturday night time slot where I was watching Saturday Night Live. Wrestling was a part of my childhood, and then this kind of pre-young adulthood, really, 12, where you're starting to realize that all these things, and then wrestling came back. You know, we, we were both big fans of Hulk Hogan. We were the perfect age to get on board with Wrestle... Um, I was going to say WrestleMania, but obviously Hulkamania is what I'm trying to say before it, it actually made its way over to the WWF. I was lucky enough to have, um, well, sorry, we were lucky, lucky enough to have the Road Warriors fill that gap that Hogan left. So it was almost like we never missed a beat for exciting wrestling. And then to have Hogan back and all the colorful characters that I was only following in wrestling magazines, it just was like... Uh, Christmas and my birthday and everything combined at once. And I just couldn't believe that. And, and I didn't even expect it. It was like the greatest thing in my life. <laughs> so we have an episode coming up where we kind of talk about our history and our childhood with the AWA. So we'll, we'll, we won't go too far backwards as far as like, how did we get there? Because you yeah, know, we covered it. We we've, we've covered it really well. So you'll, you'll hear it. No, I meant just now. That's it. He's, he's covered. That's it. We're going to get rid of that other episode. <laughs> so for me, and I've really thought about it a lot this week, I think what, and the reason why Saturday Night's main event ended up being such a big deal for me and why it was so important and why I remembered it so well, aside from the fact that I recorded a bunch of them and watched them obscenely like way too many times, uh, was that until WrestleMania, until like 1990, the summer of 90, I didn't have access to watch something until it was released on video. Meaning that when WrestleMania or those early Survivor Series, Summer Slams, Royal Rumbles, when they came out, you had to wait a certain number of months before the video cassette would be in the video store to rent. So you would get the highlights on TV the next week, the next couple of weeks on syndicated TV. WWF actually kind of hid a lot of the results back then. They didn't, you know, just tell you everything that happened. Of course, you found out about what happened with Hogan, but... What about Kenny's dad? When did we start watching wrestling? at 90. Really? Yeah, oh, I didn't. Wow. Great American Bash, 1990, was the first 
tape I got that I got my hands on from him. So we had a buddy with a big satellite <laughs> dish, and uh, we used to go and watch wrestling over at his place. But uh, a little story about that satellite dish was that he got to watch really cool movies because basically he was watching whatever his dad was watching, which was grown-up stuff. And so when he's like 13 <laughs> and his dad is watching The Terminator or whatever, he's getting these adult movies down in the basement because there was only one remote control for the satellite. Receiver, yeah. One receiver, and like everybody was watching whatever dad was watching. But what Kenny told this really funny story was that his mom would, you know, have to go to the bathroom every now and then. And <laughs> whenever he heard uh, the lighter set of footsteps creep off to the bathroom, the channel would change to, oh, I don't know. The Playboy Channel or some other blue movie. And Kenny, uh, you know, would be shocked and appalled to see his dad was watching these movies. And and then whenever the toilet flushed, (laughs) went back to The Terminator or whatever, you know, grown-up movie uh, they happened to be watching that night. (laughs) Flipping back and forth. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, so that satellite was just invaluable to my wrestling experience because that was how I got access to be able to see wrestling cards the day or the night you know the next day or that same night and in some cases even live because prior to that I just hadn't I hadn't seen them it was like you had to wait so long back in that day if you didn't have access if you weren't buying the pay-per-views weren't in a neighborhood where you could actually go to one of these closed circuit locations to actually watch a super card in in live and in color you know you were you were having to wait to you know I, I don't remember the exact time but probably two to three months so Saturday Night Live represented that opportunity to watch the show as if you were seeing it that night, like you were at the show or had that pay-per-view. Saturday Night Live? Who's oh telling comedy jokes now? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, we should keep that. Keep it off. No, no. <laughs> ah. So Saturday Night's main event represented that opportunity to watch the wrestling as if it was live. You know, like it's as if I was at that pay-per-view or could have that pay-per-view in my home. Because as I said before that, always had to wait for that VHS rental to come out. And I didn't realize at the time that it wasn't being broadcast live. I didn't know till just now. <laughs> so in some cases, they would be as much as a month behind, just like they were with syndicated TV. Wow. Yeah. Well, they, they were riding on the whole Saturday Night Live. You just assumed, right? Because exactly. Saturday Night's main event. It's yeah. just you. Why wouldn't it be live? Exactly. So that brings us to... Why you're here, you're here to listen to us talk about the Saturday Night's Main Event shows, other stuff in wrestling, and as we, we progress through this journey, we, you know, we'll figure out other th- ways to cover other topics, and we have our bonus material. But for now, what we want to do, just because it's the first episode, we need to set the table a little bit better about how did they get to Saturday, how did they get to the Saturday Night Main Event, filling in in that slot for Saturday Night Live, and how really wrestling was changing so much at that time. So, you know, we, we won't go too in de- detail but we do want to touch a little bit about what was kind of happening leading up to WrestleMania and how they kind of turned that into this connection with NBC and Saturday Night's Main Event and something that made a huge difference in the industry and in our lives as wrestling fans. So if we back it up a little bit, we talked about in the, there's an AWA episode coming up where we talk about the lineage of those world titles. So the three world titles that Jeff and I grew up sort of understanding and and looking at as these three premier championships. It was kind of summed up nicely by a PWI, Pro Wrestling Illustrated, dream card poster. <laughs> it was a super 
awesome fantasy Super Bowl type setting where the three leagues that we thought were legitimate were represented. And it was, um, I, I don't remember every detail about it, but I know at the time it was, uh, well, I hate to say ever, I know because I'm going to get the buzzer, eh, you're wrong. But anyway, Rick Martel was our guy. He was, yeah, the, yeah. you know, and then they had the other league champions and it, it, it made us realize that like, whoa, you know, the top guys got competition. There's, there's other boss <laughs> Man, you know, there's other dudes out there. And so, um, yeah, the three were so summed up nicely by that fantasy match yeah, from Pro Wrestling Illustrated to me. So just real quick, big broad strokes here. So in 1963, you know, basically something, there's a Canadian connection here in the way that the world, uh, like the way the McMahons broke away from the NWA. So in 1963, in January, in Toronto, Lou Fez defeats Buddy Roberts for the NWA championship. Buddy Roberts... Right, but not the Freebird Buddy Roberts. Rogers? I wrote Roberts and I meant Rogers because we all know it's Buddy Rogers. Cusey wins. That's right. Ding, ding, ding. So, yeah. <laughs> I know Buddy Roberts <laughs> is the, he's the oldest Freebird, but it's just, it's just a minute here. Exactly. <laughs> if he was ever the champion, we, we, something's gone wrong. <laughs> Boy, that guy goes back. <laughs> he's like eight years old. Okay, let's try that again. Beats Buddy Rogers. So, the Capital Wrestling Corporation, which was the Nature name. Nature Boy? Nature Boy Buddy Nature Rogers. Nature Boy Buddy Rogers, yes. So, the Capital Wrestling Corporation is the name that the McMahons are running their organization under. Capital Wrestling Corporation? Yeah. Cool. Yeah, pre-Worldwide Wrestling Federation. Wow. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So they do not recognize this title change. because Sorry, they? The Capital Wrestling Corporation, the McMahons. Okay. So they... There's there's a very there's a variety of reasons I would assume why they break away from the NWA business related other things. One of the primary reasons is that they're worried Luthez isn't a big draw in the East. He's not like a Madison Square Garden you know regular. They, they, that fan base doesn't know him as well, and they don't want him to be the champ. He was a big Sasquatch. Did you watch any wrestling any <laughs> matches of Luthez? I've seen some, I've seen yeah. some Luthez stuff. Yeah. Well, I first heard of him like the Luthez Press. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You yeah. Would see other guys, and it looks like the kind of like the. What would happen if you didn't really do anything and you just ran into each other? <laughs> you know, so you just jump up and they're going to try and catch you. Like, some surprise. Anyway, so Luthez was a tall, hairy guy, very lanky. Yeah. And, and, but tall, therefore, he had a strength advantage over his opponents. But just wanted to give people a little idea. <laughs> yeah. See some of that black and white footage. Yeah. And then he gets the ball spot, you know, starts to show up because he had a long career. Yeah. So, again, they don't want to recognize him as champion, and that's where they use that. That's the impetus of them breaking away from the NWA, creating the Worldwide Wrestling Federation, and you know, starting their own, their, their own world champion, you know, and keeping Buddy Rogers, which eventually, of course, becomes San Martino. And that's 1963. Yes. In 1971, the Worldwide Wrestling Federation rejoins the NWA after Bruno San Martino leaves them. Okay. Yeah. So it's like, it's not like just, in my mind, at some point when I'm a young adult, I think that they leave the NWA, and that's that's it. You know, like it's just always them on their own. But it's actually not the case. Vince McMahon Senior, you know, now, was, is, are you saying leaves them? He doesn't retire. Surely he's not retired at seventy-one. Bruno San Martino? No, no. But it, he there's a like there's a title. You know, there's a title to when he loses the title in seventy-one. Uh -huh. He's not wrestling for a while. Okay. So they're they're operating without their pillar. Let's okay. say but you he's know, gonna come back. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. He's too young. Exactly. So, in 1979, the Worldwide Wrestling Federation changes their name to World Wrestling Federation, WWF. 1979? Yes. Okay. Then we get to 1982, and that's when Vincent Kennedy McMahon. <laughs> Vincent Kennedy McMahon, you said! 
You said to break Hulk Hogan leg. Actually, of course not. It was other a, way around. I know, I know. It's supposed God, to be yeah. burned God. Yeah, I know, but it's just fun to say. <laughs> yeah, it's fun. In 1982, Vince buys the WF from his father with some other business interests for five hundred thousand dollars. Ah, half a million. Yep. That'll get you a, a house nowadays. Yeah, that's not in, even <laughs> in Toronto. Yeah, in Toronto, it'll get you a shack. That's right. <laughs> So in 1983, there's a really important meeting of the NWA, okay? And Vince is there, and Jim Barnett has, is really important behind the scenes. I know you're not super familiar with him, but he's really this key player who's part of, like, kind of every important moment in wrestling and all these different organizations, and he keeps moving around. And he's always, he's always got himself the right-hand man position, you know, and he's always part of, you know, he has business interests, and he's always finding ways to make money off of wrestling, and he's kind of playing both sides against the middle. You know, he's one of these kind of people. I don't want to get too far down the path because I know you're not super familiar with him. L- but Littlefinger. Remember the good old days of Game of Thrones? <laughs> there we go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. got yeah. his finger in every pie. That's right. They sh- so the, the, people, the, different, the different heads of the organization show up to this meeting in 1983. Surprised to see Jim Barnett with Vince McMahon. And that's when they withdraw from the NWA again. again. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay, so... That's kind of the big, fluffy, big thing. There's there's lots of great books that have been written. There's other great podcasts that have gone into great detail on this stuff. So we're not going to try and replicate all that. We're just giving, you know, just point form here, you know, just kind of get us yeah. to where we're at. And that, that leaves out, uh, I mean, doesn't entirely, but we, Vern Gagne and his AWA. Yeah, and, and we're yeah. touching on that in that other episode mm-hmm. that's coming up. So yeah. I didn't really want to get too much into that. Right, right. So in 1983. They had a very similar story, you know, just very briefly, right, yeah. of, of, of departing and of declaring course, yeah. their own champion. And, yeah. And uh, it's well documented and quite interesting. Of course. We're just not touching upon it today. Yeah, it'll come up. So really what is such a huge imp- impact on WrestleMania and the switch over as we see a new WWF coming out of WrestleMania 1 when we get into Saturday's main event. And we'll touch on why I would I mean I liked that. it better when you called it WrestleMania. Yeah. <laughs> WrestleMania. People say, when they say WrestleMania 1, yeah. you know, that's in context, we understand. But yeah. the event is called WrestleMania. <laughs> and that's it. No, no, no. Don't give me so, this WrestleMania 1 business. Just like the, the analogy being World War One was not World War One when yeah, they fought it. It was right. the Great War. And sadly, it was the war to end all wars. Anyway, uh, WrestleMania. WrestleMania. So in 1983, Lou Albano appears in Cyndi Lauper's Girls Just Want to Have Fun video. And it's such a silly thing. But this has a huge impact on wrestling and especially the WWF, obviously. And that connection between a rock star who's at sort of the peak of popularity at a really critical time in sort of entertainment and stuff like that. MTV's fairly new. They came out in ni- 1981. You know, video killed the radio star. They kind of shocked shocked the yeah. whole entertainment industry. It's an exciting time to be the age we were, which was 11, 12. Yeah, exactly. This ends up leading to the WWF working with MTV on this special. And I guess there's must... And I, I have to feel that the connection between Cindy Lauper and, and her manager, husband, David Wolf. And the music industry is maybe part of what kind of helps to bring this together. So they see this opportunity to work together. This, the New York connection. That's right. Yeah. They run the first big special that they the WF runs. The Brawl for It All. That's right. Now, I actually haven't seen it, but uh, we talked about it a little bit. So just to fill you in, we uh, I think we will review it uh, at a future date. But Hogan defends against... Uh, uh, okay, Hogan's not even there. <laughs> well, sorry, he is there. He is. He's totally there. The MTV special only shows one match, 
And okay, so I was going to say Hogan defends against Valentine, but I, I haven't seen it. So, you know, I can be forgiven. He, for he, screwing yeah, for it sure. Up. He, he does defend against Valentine. The MTV special focuses on. <laughs> Wendy Richter wrestles the fabulous Moolah. Yes. And this is where Cindy Lauper is heavily involved because they come to the ring with her music and she's in the ring and Cindy Lauper is so colorful. She's perfect for the wrestling world and she's got that brash uh, attitude that kind of comes with the Bronx accent and uh, so it was it really worked, you know, and it was exciting. Yeah, it, it brought all these different eyeballs that really wouldn't watch wrestling. And wrestling, you know, had its heyday, its glory days in the 50s where it was sort of had the first golden era. And then it really kind of went underground, you know, bingo hall, smoky this, whatever, you know, 60s, 70s, early 80s. And it's like 1985, all of a sudden for a brief window, it becomes the cool thing to do, the cool thing to watch. And, you know, you have the likes of, like, Andy Warhol or in the audience and being interviewed. And, I mean, you saw some of the other celebrities that are part of it. So it really brings this massive attention. You've already got wrestling fans' attention. Now you're bringing pop culture attention. And I think that's where, like, you know, that, that's what makes WrestleMania so successful is that they're able to get people who would never watch wrestling to watch wrestling. Okay. So we haven't got to WrestleMania quite yet. The nope. brawl for it all uh, was... Wrestled, I think, at Madison Square Garden, so New York's premier wrestling arena. And um, the night that they recorded the MTV special, Hogan wrestled Greg the Hammer Valentine and defended his title, but that didn't make it to air. They focused, the TV show was focused on the ladies' championship. Yeah, only people watching the Madison Square Garden network, uh, which had some limited coverage across the country, got to see the whole card. But your big national audience that was watching MTV got one big match in the setup and the follow-up of, of it, you know, kind of thing. That was the, that's the setup of these, these shows. Yeah. July 23rd, 1984, Brawl for it all. The next one was called The War to Settle the Score. And here we have the crystallization of the WWF Hogan versus Rowdy Roddy Piper, who has a Winnipeg connection, I think in his teenage years. Of course, uh, yeah. He, um, up here. So yeah, we get to uh, claim Piper as one of his, one of our own, <laughs> and uh, oh god, I'll never forget, you know, him holding all the gold one time when he wrestled. He, it was <laughs> it was so great when uh, Piper was Intercontinental Champion and got to come down to the ring in a Jets jersey. Flair was World Champion of the WWF, and uh, they wrestled twice in Winnipeg. And man, one of the times that Flair did the cowardly heel run away. He left his belt behind, and right. Piper didn't win it, but he sure as hell put one title over his left shoulder, other title over the right shoulder, yeah. and probably threw on his hockey jersey again. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it was so great. Well, just for the... Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The visual. Yeah. But, uh, man, and then Winnipeg screaming for Rowdy Roddy while he's got both... Yeah. The, fall, the fall of 91, we got to see a match between them when neither of them were the champs. And then, except for Flair was the real world champion. Oh, amazing <laughs> and, angle. And, and, then, and then it comes back in 92, like shortly after the Royal Rumble. Like not long after the Royal Rumble, here they are again back in Winnipeg for this match. And now we've got, you know, like, just like Jeff said, champion versus champion. Incredible. And Flair hits, hits, the, hits the bricks and leaves Piper with both belts. Yeah, that's just the greatest one. Like, oh, man. 
That's when wrestling is at its best. Anyway, back to um, when we made the transfer over to WWF Entertainment, it really did at first seemed this feud symbolized what they were doing, and that was Hogan versus Piper. And uh, it was, you know, all these years later, it feels like it was stalemate, a draw, you know, and you've, I've heard shirt, shoot interviews, you know, um, about like Piper saying, well, I got to sell my lunch boxes too. You yeah. Know? yeah. And um, yeah, his strategy was to never let them pin him on TV or in any kind of recorded fashion that, you know, could come back to haunt him kind of thing. He felt like he could keep his value up by never quote unquote jobbing to Hogan. And so that was the main event of the second MTV special, the yep. whole NBC New York connection we're talking about. And oh my God, does Piper cut the greatest promo possibly <laughs> of all time after the event. Uh, Danny DeVito uh, is getting interviewed by Mean Gene Okerlund and Piper bursts in just <laughs> fucking firing at a hundred miles per hour and he's uh, covered in sweat because like he's got all the adrenaline up from the match and he's just uh, he hasn't won the belt of course but he comes in like I don't care what you say I'm a champion I'm gonna use a big phony I want a rematch I'm gonna take him out and he's just like <laughs> fuck is he on fire I mean like it was uh, that excitement was just uh, palpable. Goddamn, Piper was good on the mic. Yeah. And um, so there were also on that card, probably that didn't make it to air. Do you have any details about the other matches fought that night? Did Lopper make another appearance in, in Mula? I, I think she did. You know, I haven't looked at that that list in so long. But again, we, you know, we're going to cover that. So oh, just... I know what I'm neglecting, yeah. obviously, is Mr. T. Yeah, that's the other big piece of pop culture, you know, involving Mr. T who's at ringside at this and, particular TV taping and special. Yeah. yeah. And he gets involved in the Hogan Piper angle and that sets, that sets it all up. Right. Uh, so cowboy Bob Orton is a uh, present is mm. yeah. Because Mr. T objects to the unsportsmanlike conduct of these two gentlemen <laughs> in the sporting contest. And, uh, the, you know, he's kind of like, you know, gets on the apron. He's like, should I get involved? And the crowd's yeah, going yeah. bananas and he does get involved. And uh, it was these two TV specials on MTV that led us up to WrestleMania. Yeah. But, and oh, actually, well, there's one more television show, but it wasn't a wrestling show that uh, is key as well. Yeah. So one of the big things from, like, that first special, you know, it did a 9.0 Nielsen rating. It was, like, the highest in MTV history. Uh, it was very successful. So this is, like, big business, right? So, like, MTV wants to do another one. So they do another one. It goes really, really well. Leads up to WrestleMania. Now we have all these things coming together where like McMahon's pushed all his chips in. He's all he's all in on WrestleMania, and a lot of people, a lot of books have been written, a lot of you know interviews have been done that basically if WrestleMania doesn't go off well, all this money that you know McMahon owes all this money. He's 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 kind of leveraged all this money to pay all the people and to like back then with the closed circuit venues that they would use, you would have to put down a deposit. He'd have to pay money to have all these different cities across the U.S. and some in Canada where people could go. Kind of like, you know, to a, you know, in a small arena, a venue, a theater, and they'd set up some screens and you'd watch it. So instead of getting pay-per-view at home in your, you know, on your own TV, you had to go to a public location to like watch this if you weren't in Madison Square Garden. All of this comes down to the fact that like he's going to be in big trouble. If WrestleMania 1's not a, a big success, he could actually end up losing control of the company. He'd have to like sell shares and stuff like that. And we probably have a different landscape for the <laughs> history of wrestling if that's the case. Now... The, the pre-sales for the closed circuit, they're not promising. They're very worried leading up to it. And then that's when he gets a stroke of luck and fluke and everything else. And I think, Jeff, that's maybe what you're trying to get back to, which is is, the, is we get these special hosts. 
Absolutely. So uh, not only were we dedicated to wrestling, we loved the comedy that our older brothers were into, at least at, uh, for me anyway. John Belushi was one of my heroes because he was so crude and funny, and uh, I got to watch Animal House and, uh, and, and Bill Murray and all these guys that had done Saturday Night Live. So I would try to watch that all the time. So one evening we're watching, expecting to watch Saturday Night Sorry, we are watching Saturday Night Live, and uh, I'm sorry to say it didn't happen to me live, like I heard about it after. But all of a sudden, the two came together. Hulk Hogan and Mr. T hosted Saturday Night Live and just combined all the greatest things the, in the, the world. The night before the first WrestleMania. Wow. The night before the first WrestleMania. Um and it was because, of course, the fact that they were much music and NBC were, you know, MT- MTV. He said right, much music. Right, but, but ah, that's because I had one of the Well, okay, this is a good segue. Yeah, yeah. For those of you out there who are uh, not Canadian, you won't know that we had a cheap, watered-down version of MTV, <laughs> and it was called Much Music. And uh, I just wish that we actually were able to watch MTV here. I want my MTV. We didn't have it. We had no. much music, and so we, we had didn't vid- get... We had video hits. <laughs> video hits, yeah. And uh, anyway, so there's just, I was wanting to get that story in there, so yeah, that's yeah. why, you know, yeah, Freudian yeah. slip. Anyway, so much music was like uh, the CFL to the NFL, the much music to MTV. <laughs> that's great, yeah. So this special they did, the one match they showed was the Hogan Piper, as Jeff alluded to. There's all these great celebrities that are interviewed afterwards, you know, Joe Piscopo and Danny DeVito and all this stuff, and it just really went well for them. So coming out of WrestleMania, which everyone's pretty familiar with, you know, we, they, there's a chain, you know, basically the MTV connection is going to go away. So basically because of the success of the MTV specials, MTV wants to be in further business with the WWF, but it wants a piece of the pie. It wants a chunk of the WWF. Not sure the, all the details, but basically they're trying to force their hand in and be like, they want more from the WWF. They want an ownership stake. I'm, I'm not 100% sure. But anyways, something that Vince McMahon does not want, okay? So this leads to a connection with Dick Ebersol, who, of course, is coming off of his connection with Saturday Night Live. So it's this full circle moment of, like, Saturday Night Live helped WrestleMania, but then it also gives them the connection to Dick Ebersol, which gets them on NBC. And we see almost like a new world, the way wrestling gets presented. So up until that point, if you go and look at WrestleMania, dark arena, you know, certain style of camera work, the production values aren't quite there. And heading into this May 11th broadcast, this first Saturday Night's main event, Dick Ebersol has a vision and he teaches Vince McMahon and his, and his company and his employees how to produce wrestling that looks like it's in a more modern era, a more bright, a more vivid, a more lit up, higher production value. Dick Ebersol didn't want one truck showing up with two cameras and, you know, some few lights and whatever else, you know, he wanted to make a big production of it. So they have four cameras on the floor. They have multiple hard cameras up, you know, up at higher places. So it's a completely different setup and way to do, way to do wrestling. And even the way they script and show things is going to be a bit different. Now, people like Jesse Ventura will buck the system and be like, yeah, no, no, you're not scripting what I'm saying. But a lot of the things that people say, like the preview, the promos that are done at the beginning of those episodes, they're actually scripted, which they never were in that time. But they're short little bits. So, like, if we're going to script a three-minute flare promo, well, that sucks. But if we're going to script a 10-second soundbite, that makes a bit more sense, right? Like, you know, it's fine that it fits into the beats 
and the timing of everything. So one of the things that was going on in the wrestling world was that world-class championship wrestling, Texas, actually had higher production values than the WWF for a while. So they got a connection. I'm forgetting the story. It's been so long since I heard it, but... Basically, people they were in business with brought in all these extra cameras, and they started having these more dynamic, um, you know, instant replays on their shows that other wrestling, even WWF, didn't have at the time. So, like, they were really, like, they were poised and in a position to go national before McMahon. They had these, you know, the the, the, the Von Erich boys were hot as could be, you know, bringing people like the Freebirds. That was a massive angle. They were, they were in a position to do it. They just didn't have the business acumen. They didn't really know how to, like, take that next step and do what McMahon did, and that's what he had over everybody else, was that he had a vision of what he wanted to do and what he wanted wrestling to be, and not everybody agrees with it, not everybody likes it, and there's some negatives that come with it, but there's also the positives. So when we first get to see Saturday Night's Main Event, I'm coming from watching, we're still watching AWA syndicated TV, and we can't watch, I'll state it better, I wasn't watching WWF syndicated TV because I didn't know I had access. Up until about a month ago, I would have told you I didn't have access. I recently just found out that I apparently did, and apparently I was somehow missed it. I didn't know that WF was on TV in Winnipeg. But what I did know was what I saw in the magazines, and trying to follow the Hogans and the Mean Jeans and the Bobby Heenans as they left the AWA. So, just like Jeff said, my brothers are going to watch Siren Alive. I'm right there with them to watch Siren Alive, because I always would, would, would watch it with them. And bang, on comes wrestling. And it just blows your mind because it's this totally different look. It looks nothing like my AWA show. This looks like a, a massive production. This is like the Super Bowl. You know, this is this is looking like a big deal. It's and really it, great. The music, it was the future is now. <laughs> synthesizers and like a real yeah. driving, pounding, you know, tune that unforgettable. Yeah, yeah. We're going to swing back to some of the, when we get into the second half and we get really into reviewing the show, of course, we're going to get into all the, the, the details, the ins and the outs of the show and stuff like that. And, and if anyone listening to anything that Jeff and I have recorded, music and wrestling is a big deal for us. So we'll always talk about that and always come back to it. But I think what we want to do to really set up, set the table as we wrap up the first half and get towards the second half is we really want to look at what were the fans seeing? What was the WWF showing the fans coming out of WrestleMania Leading into Saturday's main event, what were they supposed to be excited about? What were they thinking about? What were the wrestlers who appear on this card doing on those television tapings leading into this? And that's going to kind of give us a bit of flavor. We weren't, uh, we weren't, unfortunately, we weren't people watching those shows, so we don't know what it looked like. So I had to go do some investigation, look up the cards, look up the, you know, the who was on each each television taping, look at results, look what was happening on some of the, you know, the Piper's Pits, the the body shops trying to see what, what angles were they trying to push. Now, one of the big questions I have, and if anybody out here listening has any idea on this, I'd love to know, is what was the promotion like? What, you know, Because we're talking about an actual broadcast channel, NBC, not all of the syndicated affiliates, I would assume, could really promote. So if you're like a Fox affiliate or something like that, or whatever, you know, you know, take your pick, I'm assuming that they wouldn't really be broadcasting stuff for other channels. So it would have been interesting to know what do those syndicated TVs look like? How did they promote Saturday Night's Main Event? on those channels how as a fan at home watching on tv what were you told and did you just stumble across it like we did my name is cindy Lauper, and your name is going to be mud if you miss saturday night's main event because if you don't wrestle you don't rock so there was a lot of things that happened after wrestlemania that we got to see on tv to further the feud between roddy piper and paul orndorff so jeff i know you watched several clips and I'm just hoping that, you know, we'll go through a couple of things here and get your take on what you got to see. 
Fire away. <laughs> so I think the first one was just an interview, a backstage, no no, uh, no announcer, and it's uh, April 14th on All-American Wrestling, Piper Norton talking. Yep. Piper is worked up. You can see that his hair is all wet from sweat, so it's just after a workout and the adrenaline's still flowing. It's Piper's signature. And um, he's basically suggesting that it's not his fault what happened at WrestleMania, and it is the fault of a certain Mr. Blunderful, Paul Orndorff. <laughs> and uh, Paul Orndorff, Cowboy Bob, has a black eye. So that's one thing that doesn't fit quite with all the bragging that Piper <laughs> is uh, laying down. However, um, yeah, it's a great promo in the locker room. And also, Orton's got a great voice, deep gravelly. You know, yeah. it's, it's a good contrast. So it's short and sweet. But it definitely is setting up a, a longer unfolding of Piper versus Orndorff. Because so far, unusually, Piper and Orndorff didn't actually come to blows at WrestleMania, which nowadays probably would have happened like immediately. Instead, they're taking their time. Yeah, they're saving it. They're making you wait for it. Way better this way. Yeah. And we throw it back to Mean Gene and Lord Alfred Hayes in the control room. And we have an accidental, really cringy, almost R-rated moment, uh, you know, homoerotic to the point of Hogan and Warrior at WrestleMania. Um, well, we'll just let you listen. I wonder, I wonder if you folks can say that. <laughs> well, Lord Alfred Hayes, it's, it's quite apparent that Roddy Piper is blaming Mr. Wonderful Paul Orndorff for their misfortunes in that great match from WrestleMania. That's, um, that's an easy way out for Piper. Let us uh, also face facts that Piper is very, very good with his tongue, his mouth. Oops, yeah, sorry there. <laughs> I'm, I think that Piper might have objected if he'd heard that. That's <laughs> pretty good. This style of storytelling requires that the viewer have patience. So I think the next thing that gets recorded on April 16th for championship wrestling is a Piper pit where their guest is Bobby Heenan, and he has a very special announcement. Well, not only that, he looks like a million dollars before Ted DiBiase ever showed up. He's <laughs> color-coordinated. He's got this awesome red and black outfit, and it goes yeah. really well with Piper's uh, predominantly red set. And I didn't know this little gem existed. <laughs> Heenan gets so hot and because he's been fired by Paul Orndorff <laughs> and uh, Sh Piper's shocked. He's like, no, you can't do that. <laughs> so good. And uh, uh, Heenan is just belligerent. Like it's, it's fucking amazing. <laughs> I've never seen him get so angry. The three heels, because of course Orton is there in the background as Piper's interviewing Bobby the Brain Heenan. And after he announces that he's been fired, Heenan starts to tear apart Piper's That's set. Right. And he's he kicking like chairs. <laughs> yeah, and like amazing. Like it's suddenly Bobby Heenan's like the Tasmanian devil and Piper's afraid of him. Like, whoa, whoa, calm down. I, I take it easy. Like, when does this ever happen? Did he say something along the lines maybe before that of like, you put a smear on my name. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that's, that's yeah, exactly. He has a pretty good reason to, uh, you know, kayfabe complain yeah. and be like, I've never been fired before. This is humiliating. <laughs> oh, man, it is a really good session. Uh, Heenan doesn't usually play the powder keg who's going to be calmed down before he just beats somebody up. Like, it's, it's a really different take on Heenan, and I loved it. Mr. Wonderful Orndorff has fired me. What? Wait a second. Wait, 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 wait. You can't wait. You're the manager. He cannot. Wait, wait. He 
Yeah, so there's we didn't get to see this. We've looked for it. We can't find it. But on April 21st, there was a Hogan title defense against Paul Orndorff. This is, you know, post-WrestleMania, um, but you're basically in this sort of weird, maybe in-between status. Like, Orndorff's maybe not 100% a good guy yet, but he's well on his way. It's stated that Hogan wins when there's a cross-body attempt where the momentum rolls through. But the important thing here is what happens after the match. Well, it's the handshake. He shows class, and he's, and he's getting applauded uh, for his gentlemanly, <laughs> sportsman-like conduct. There's another uh, one on Prism TV. So I think it's pretty much the same thing, but and Hogan wins with a leg drop this time. But again, after the match, you get that post-match respect between the two and how they're, you know, like they're switching Paul Orndorff from being this dastardly heel to, you know, one of the top baby faces. Fascinating for someone to, you know, take Hogan's leg drop to go down one, two, three, endearing the audience to Paul Orndorff, Mr. Wonderful, as they should. Just ask Cal Redmond. <laughs> Oh, yeah. So, recorded on May 7th, and I'm going to assume that that would air after Saturday Night's Mid-Event. But it's still, it's such a juicy piece here. we gotta, we got to touch on this. It's a match on championship wrestling between Hulk Hogan and Ken Patera. And a certain John Studd gets involved. No, wait, wait, wait a minute. What kind of Ken Patera? Is this AWA? Ken Patera? <laughs> this is, this is this Ken that, Patera. Uh, you know, bleach blonde, super cut, you know. Ah, that's yeah. AWA, Ken Patera. <laughs> that's Not right. Not this brown-haired, blue outfit. WWF 86, 87, Kempter. No, thank you. So when the clip picks up, you get uh, Stud in street clothes and Patera double teaming him, and Heenan's getting up on the apron. It looks like he's going to come in the ring. And, uh, you know, what happens after that? Orndorff runs in for the rescue. He looks amazing, you know, like He-Man and the Masters of the Universe. <laughs> you know, he's just so ripped. As soon as Orndorff throws a couple punches at Stud, Hogan comes back to life. That's right. And he takes on the other guy. And, man, you know, this is huge excitement. The crowd is going crazy. You can see the way they're jumping and waving their arms. They are so into it. I mean, actually, this looks like the original mm, yeah, the original mega yeah, mega powers. <laughs> this looks like a bigger crowd pop for even, you Yeah, know, we'll have to wait till we get there, but man, were they ready for this. Uh, right. Uh, wow. I mean, almost more exciting than Randy Savage and Hulk Hogan teaming up yeah, years yeah. later. Yeah, yeah. So they, they chase the heels off, and uh, Orndorff gets one last really good shot in on Heenan, who sends him over the top rope. I love it. The oh, Heenan yeah. bump. Heenan was an uh, actual in-ring performer in his early days. Greg Gagne called him the greatest talent we had. That's right, yeah. And then at the end, when it's all done, we get two things happening. One is a great pose down, but it's not just Hogan. It's a double pose. So it's, it's Hogan and Orndorff side-by-side side matching poses. But maybe even more importantly, it's what we hear. We, it's hard to hear, and it took us a second. We had to listen to it twice, but you can hear Eye the Tiger. I don't want to be a broken record if you can pardon the pun and forgive me, but uh, yeah, the original music is so key to our enjoyment and the formation of these memories that whenever we actually get to hear the real sounds as they were at the time that these momentous events, it's just so much better. So yeah, we can hear Eye of the Tiger, Survivor, <laughs> in the background as they're flexing and posing. And man, it would have been great to have been in the crowd that night. Yeah, it's just so great to see them as this like this these friends, this team, these you know good buddies. And, and this is like almost a full year of this before the turn. So like it never really maybe. I don't think I ever quite saw it this way. I never got to see Hogan and, and Orndorff be like this together. Don't tell me the score, man. <laughs> what turn? <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. All right, Hulk Hogan and Mr. Wonderful Paul Orndorff. Oh, yeah, look at that. Whoa. 
there was a six-man tag with George the Animal Steel, the Sheik, and Volkov versus some jobbers, but they had Gurria on their side, so that was, you know, it's interesting. They're setting up this idea of this, this threesome. Yeah, George Steele for Volkov, Sheik. Tag team champions there. Then we get to Mad Maxine. A very impressive-looking lady. She's 6'4", or something what? like that. Yeah, she uh, really towers over. That's her build height. It's not like I got her in the police lineup and can confirm or deny <laughs> such rumors. And sure enough, she's got this pink mohawk or bright green or maybe pink from one side and green from the other. Yeah. She just towers. It's almost like giant Gonzalez uh, lady style, except for she's not really clumsy like him. He was yeah. a, not a legendary entertainer. So uh, this lady does a pretty thorough job of disposing of um, her opponent. There's certainly... Uh, an opportunity for Moolah to be a heel. So I think she lays the boots to the fallen opponent. And it was too bad. We never saw Mad Maxine again. The Road Warriors certainly rode that gimmick to fame and fortune. But this <laughs> lady, right. this is, I'd never yeah. heard of her until watching this clip. So what we're seeing on some of these house shows is, uh, and some of these tapings is Wendy Richter defeating Lilani Kai, who she, you know, who she beat at WrestleMania to get her belt back. So they kind of keep with that. There's a, there's a match. She can Volkov come out to wrestle some uh, some jobbers, and Volkov's doing his national anthem, and all of a sudden, who's in the ring behind them? The U.S. Express <laughs> sneaks in behind the Sheik and Volkov. The heels turn around and see, to their shock, the guys that they took the belts from are there and looking for trouble. So, of course, the heels, uh, classy Freddie Blassie. I wish we'd gotten more of him. He right, knows. yeah. Uh, because it seems like all too soon he disappeared, you know, and doesn't last too long. But uh, I'm realizing what gold he is. And uh, <laughs> so anyway, it's uh, really cool to see this footage because it's it, uh, of that era. I've never even seen the setup, the look, you know, the colors. And so the uh, back to the match, the referee forces, well, Blassie insists that the ref <laughs> gets the U.S. Express to leave the ring. They're not going to be allowed to wrestle in place of the jobbers. And the jobbers come in, and uh, they job for, you know, Volkov and <laughs> the course, Sheik. yeah. Yep. But it was entertaining because Volkov and the Sheik are just, they're such a great comedy duo, but they're also, you know, the champs. So That's right, yeah. These clips were exciting to watch. Jack, did you see what happened? Yes. Barry Windham and Mike Rotundo snuck into the ring when Nikolai Volkov was singing his anthem. Okay, so yeah, some other stuff we got to see was... Um... There was a steamboat snooker match, and they were like, uh, and then there was an interview, I believe. But like this idea of them be, they're starting to being promoted as like the South Pacific connection. Steamboat is like everybody's dance partner. Like, what's going on? <laughs> yeah, he's just he's, he's teamed exactly. I think we've listed just about the entire roster is teamed with Steamboat. You know, once we include the you know inaugural episode of Saturday Night's Main Event. Yeah. You know. Anyway, but at least these guys have the closest connection. You yeah, know what I yeah, mean? yeah, 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 uh, yeah. Hawaii and the Polynesian Islands, I guess, uh, Snooker? Yeah, or, yeah that's yeah, right. Yeah. I may not get A-pluses on my geography, but anyway. So, uh, <laughs> and they have a very similar style, too. So, they worked well as a, yeah. you know, Ocean Express. That's right. Yeah, it didn't, didn't really go anywhere, but it seemed like they were setting it up. Some of the neat things about these files we found is they still had some commercials in them. And that was kind of a nice throw, little throwback. I noticed there was like a, uh, a Rambo 2 commercial and stuff like that. It kind of made me laugh. And, and another thing was the, uh, 
the call in for the 24 hour hotline for WWF back in like 1985. Like you could call in and hear like recording recorded messages from the superstars or something like that. <laughs> Some poor parents phone bill going through the roof. They're so real. And Rowdy Rock Piper. Can you tell the difference? Yeah. 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 Wrestling superstars, they're for real. Ain't sold separately from LJN. Yeah. Okay, so there's another All-American Wrestling taping that, you know, featured one neat thing. Again, Bulldogs were getting a lot of play here, and Matt Bourne, who wrestled at WrestleMania, was like one of the two opponents. He, he put up a pretty good fight. Of course, his partner was uh, was, no, was no match for the Bulldogs. That's right. It's kind of like a half-jobber opponent. I wasn't sure. It was bizarre mix because, yeah, yeah, and they definitely sold for Matt Bourne, not a squash Oh, match. yeah, and he, and he didn't lay down for them at all. The AWA actually used to do this quite a bit. I would remember this, that they would have these weird matches where it would be like two, you know, it would be like, let's just pretend to make it up. High Flyers versus... Jobber and Jesse Ventura, and it would be like what <laughs> you know, like and and the Jobber would take the pinfall, and you know Jesse would be like ah come on, you know, or or vice versa. There'd wow. be like two I, heels, and then like a Jobber and a good guy. You I know, had like, forgotten that about the AWA. Yeah, they saw a few, a, a few times. It was like that was like that was one of the only ways you could actually get a match that wasn't just a short clip where good wrestlers were facing each other, but because they were like hamstrung with this like weakling partner, they you know they would. The, the match would always end fairly what, quickly. What unique booking! I'll have to, I have to see it to believe it. <laughs> okay, I mean, I do believe yeah. <laughs> you. I, you know, I, not like I don't believe you. I just like what? Uh, like you said, we watched the Bulldogs so far before they became the polished look that, or that before they developed, you know, the Union Jack on their butt. Yeah, their uh, early. I sort of enjoyed some of their earlier tight variations. You know, over the what, like you're alluding to, like by like eighty seven, eighty eight. Yeah, they kind of went with the the white long tights with sort of the blue and the, the Union Jack on the butt. Yeah. Uh, but at times, in the early days, they would either both be wearing red or both be wearing blue. And I think my favorite look was like, Davy Boy would wear blue and Dynamite would wear red. Like, ah. t- like long pants, you know. Right. And uh, I really, li- you know, I just loved loved everything about it. Here are your winners, the British Bulldogs! <laughs> there was a great, there was Ken Patera fighting some jobber, and Jesse has a great line, I don't know if you caught it, but it was like... Lose if you must, win if you can, but always cheat. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was one of the best things about these clips was Jesse commenting. Yeah, commenting. for sure, for sure. And he would do a body shop. He had uh, Orton on one of them, but I, I really noticed, like, with the body shop in particular, it was always so short. Like, it would it would start and it would be over. Like, it was never more than, like, a minute or something. It was kind of strange how short they were. Yeah. JYD was his guest on one of the clips that I reviewed. He starts by... Doing a couple of reps. Jesse's got his uh, his weights. Well, you know, Kenny Patera lives by, well, how does the saying he says goes, win, win if you can, lose if you must, but always cheat. Another really interesting thing on the same uh, episode that we watched was we get to see a very early Bret Hart, and he's showing just the earliest signs of becoming a heel. It's true. Cheating. That's yeah, neat. It's really neat. I, it, was, it was really great. And then the last thing that I saw on that one, which was really quite neat, was Mean Gene interviewing Jimmy Hart with Jim the Anvil Neidhart and King Kong Bundy. Yeah, now that's where the whole thing was, uh, yeah, you're like, they hadn't figured it out yet. Put Bret Hart with Neidhart and Jimmy Hart and uh, the <laughs> exactly. Hart Foundation. Yeah. Seems obvious, and but they sure did, uh, I mean, they had all those tools laid out before them. 
and they really did play their cards well when they combined. Yeah, for sure. And it's interesting because Mean Gene in the interview even alludes to, like, are you going to put these two guys, as in King Kong Bundy and, and Nightheart, together as a tag team? And it was, you know, and it, it's funny because Bundy's interview is all about, like, he's insisting that he always has two opponents, and he doesn't care who it is. He, like, you know, U.S. Express, he wants both of them, just him. <laughs> I feel bad for Neidhart at this point because he looks like a pipsqueak next to Bundy. And, <laughs> you know, a big guy, but, but ha- Bundy's huge. And his whole angle, his booking is supposed to be strong man, yeah, you know. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't really come across when you're standing right. next to, you know, <laughs> get me that scrawny Bret Hart guy instead. And, and you know what makes me sick, Gene? What? What's been making me sick since I've been here in the WWF is them having the nerve, these promoters having the goal to put me in a ring with one man. I should be in the ring with a minimum of two men at one time. I don't care who it is. Give me the Pacific Coconut Connection. Give me the Bulldogs. Give me any two men. It doesn't matter who they are. Okay, so the last thing we want to touch on from these cards and these the, the stuff that we saw, like we said, we couldn't really actually watch what we wanted to see, so we just pieced together what we could find. And we've been really enjoying, as we've been recording things, as Jeff came across Prism TV. So that's uh, wrestling from the Spectrum, Philadelphia. And there's this great host... <laughs> Jeff showed me a clip of in one of the episodes we recorded, and we just howled at this guy. He's so funny. And so I came across this taping, and, you know, it's sad because you can't find this show. It was recorded and broadcast on TV. It's not on the WWE Network. I'm assuming they're maybe sitting on this footage, but, man, what I would, like, love to see this particular card because it's just got so much great stuff on it. So this Spectrum card, it's got some really unique, neat things on it. So first off, it's noted the Bulldogs and the Hart Foundation. So this is the first occurrence now of Jim and Brett wrestling together at this point. They're finally getting together now in this string of shows. They finally decided, like Jeff said, they finally figured it out. Let's really turn Bret Hart heel because he wasn't going anywhere as a babyface. You know, Cowboy Bret Hart or whatever they were doing, it wasn't working. Cowboy Bret? Oh, I guess. Yeah, that's how they brought him in, uh, the, you know, the Alberta gimmick, right? The cowboy. Yeah. He didn't have a hat. On, on that. I, think he was wearing a, I think he was wearing a cowboy hat and a you know, belt buckle or something when he came out to the ring, and I didn't see footage of that. He's already started to transition to a more sort of just, I'm a wrestler look in the one we watched, where he's sort of like, the commentators are noticing that he's wrestling in a very heelish way, even though he's not supposed to be one. Yeah, it's, it's you know, out of context for us. You yeah, know. for sure. So they wrestled to a 20-minute draw, and it's important to note this is their first ever match in the WWF. So getting to like it's recorded. It's been it's it was on TV. The first ever match between the Bulldogs and the Hart Foundation in the WWF. That's like so cool. Like it'd be so awesome to get to see that. Absolutely. And then Steamboat and Snooker win one of these fifty thousand dollar tag team battle royals. I've never seen those like uh, other than the AWA one. That's where we've seen a tag team battle royal. I see them listed a lot, but I've never seen one recorded. I can't remember if Coliseum ever had one. I don't ever remember seeing one. The AWA one is the only one I've ever seen footage of. It always spices things up when you put a bunch of big phony money on the table. <laughs> Giant fake check. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that's always good. <laughs> what are other ones? Uh, the, well, the Crockett Cup, a million dollars. A million dollars. Yeah, right. <laughs> and uh, $20,000 Battle Royal. or you know. $50,000 Battle Royal. Oh, yeah. yeah. They always do that. <laughs> they should tell what it really is. The $550 battle royal. Right. And then Vern Gagne like, um, you know what? Actually, um, there's a Gagne tax on that. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so basically, really, coming out of WrestleMania, your storylines are really still intact in many ways. So, you know, the tag team championship, that feud is continuing on. The fallout of the main event of Hogan and Orndorff, that's continuing on. Wendy Richter versus, you know, Moolah in some fashion, that's con- carrying on. So Saturday Night's Main Event really represents a continuation of the WrestleMania storylines. 
Moolah's trying to be Bobby Heenan and, you know, King Kong Bundy at the same time. <laughs> well, she's a manager and, you know. Oh, I see what you're saying. Up, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> maybe not Bundy, per yeah, se, Bundy's but <laughs> I was going to say Orndorff, and I'm like, well, no, because, you know, he keeps flipping <laughs> back and forth, right? Yeah, for sure. So I think that, well, like, you know. long term, uh, his storyline, Orndorff goes, you know. Heel face, heel face, heel yeah. face. But anyway, that's not what we're talking about now. I think one of the interesting thing, like alluding back to the VHS release time frame, and I, I, I wasn't able to find the information. I, I know that it took me a while to actually get to watch WrestleMania. So if you had to wait for it to come out on VHS, then of course Saturday's main event was on TV before WrestleMania. So in some ways you would sort of like see Saturday's main event, this follow-up to WrestleMania, before you actually got all the details of WrestleMania. You sort of knew the broad strokes. You kind of knew the big picture things from WrestleMania, but you didn't get to see it all. So it's, it's you know, it's, I think that's pretty neat, like the timing of that, you know, how you would watch something out of order. So make it clear to me which happened first and then in well, what WrestleMania order. was March 31st, but it probably wasn't available on VHS until like the end of the summer or something like that. So. Okay. And then May 11th, we know. Is, is yeah. is just, you know, like a month and a bit later. So you're basically, you have access to watch this follow-up TV special before you necessarily got to see all of the matches from WrestleMania, uh-huh. as opposed to just the you know what the whatever highlights they might have shown you on syndicated TV after WrestleMania happened. Of course. So we'll come back in the second half with some uh, probably some corrections because we usually find we make some mistakes, and uh, and then of course the the details of the show itself and anything else we can figure out to talk about. So we had a real good time the other day appearing on a friend of ours podcast called The Manitoba Money Shot. And he has provide us, provided us with a little promo clip that uh, we're going to play for you now. We are rolling. Yay. Clap, clap, clap. I'll curb stop a hippie to do business with you. Wow. If you ever say anything about my mom again, I'm going to cut you. It was a dumpster fire of a show. And we all looked at each other just going like, oh, shit. Yeah, make hobo fires and trash. <laughs> I could work in porn. And he said, is there any weed in here? I said, yes, it's behind the microwave. How is a pioneer <laughs> in nerdiness? She could stick a lot out there. Seasoned with my ass blood. I went to court for that for almost two years. She says her husband's name was Pinky, and he passed away. Wow. And she would be honored. The Manitoba Money Shot Podcast is a podcast, eh? Welcome back to the second half. We're getting ready to talk about Saturday night's main event, that first show. But first, we have a little housekeeping to do. As has been the case with the recordings we've already done for our bonus material, we like to take a moment to crack ourselves, do some fill-ins, some add-ins, get some extra context, and kind of figure out maybe what we were missing when we were talking in the first half and where we can correct ourselves. So there's not too many, fortunately, for this one, so... We talked a little bit about Bruno when we were talking about the history of the WWF, and we were a little confused about like the idea of like that he left the WWF, the WWF actually, and what had happened at that time. So it is listed that he did later that year after losing the title. Uh, that year? 71. That he won the International Tag Team Championships for his second time teaming with Dominic DiNucci. And then he took a hiatus from the company in 1971 until into 1972 to go work in Japan. In various other territories. Ah. Is that kind of 
answered that. No, it was not a retirement. It was just him going in and doing other things. I want to make a correction that's not even on this show. <laughs> so Jeff and I got an opportunity to be interviewed, as you heard on that uh, clip during the break in our show, where we were on the Manitoba Money Shot podcast with Ron Moore. And during that interview, we were talking a little bit about the 92 Royal Rumble, and Ron asked if Ric Flair drew number two, and I wrongly confirmed that he drew number three. It was DiBiase, Davy Boy Smith, and then Ric Flair. So I was wrong. <laughs> Much better booking that way he could get the pop by walking down to the ring. That's right. I'm pretty sure that was the first year they started doing, like, everyone got their own music, not just the first two guys. Ah, I hadn't uh, re- realized the yeah. music Because I can aspect. remember, I can remember Flair walking out to his music, and he wasn't one of the first two guys. Because those first few years, it was only the first two wrestlers that got their inter- inter- entrance music. I see. Yeah. And a lot of guys didn't even have entrance music at that time. Another thing that I was a little bit off on, not really important, but... I was talking about the idea of, like, how did they promote Science Man Event on syndicated TV? Because since the show's on NBC, some of their syndicated TV are affiliates that are not NBC or, you know, competition to NBC. So I suggested perhaps it was a Fox affiliate at one point, but considering Fox didn't come into existence until October 9th, 1986, that example was wrong. Not really important at all, but I do like to correct it. And I think the last thing I got to pick up on here would be we were talking about the Bret Hart match. And Jeff wasn't sure if maybe that's where he'd heard Lord Alfred Hayes. And actually, it wasn't. That was just, that was still Jesse and that other host. So I think we've cleaned up everything there. Well, there was one episode of Battle of the Network Stars where Mr. <laughs> T had the tug rope. And he's like, Every fool better watch Saturday Night's Main Event, fool, all you fools. <laughs> okay, I totally made that up. Okay. You had me. I would I would I would have believed it. <laughs> but it was cool seeing okay, I only made the, the part up about what he said. Yeah. For sure. I remember that he had a bunch of weaklings on his team and Mr. T like <laughs> lost the tug of war because of all these pencil neck geeks on his team. <laughs> That's good. Yeah, I I totally remember the show, but I can't I can't think of any specifics of it. Like I have no, you know, no reference to anything on the show other than the fact that I just remember it was a show and you know, would have watched um, it at the time. One other memory was uh Chachi, he <laughs> kicked everybody's ass at a swimming competition. Oh, wow. Yeah, because, well, he did a little interview after, and he said, well, the water was so cold, I'm thinking he was so coked up that he just... Zoom. <laughs> 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 but actually, on the other hand, he was in peak... Um, Hollywood uh, young man form. He was. He looked like the Submariner or something. He, you know. He yeah, was, yeah. He did look like an athlete. Perfect. Okay, let's get ready for the big show. Okay, it's the main event. Literally Saturday night's main event. It's time to get on with reviewing the show, which both of us I think have seen for the first time in a long time. I got to watch this show the night it aired, May 11th, 1985. I think I watched it maybe one other time, maybe 2017 or 16 or 15 or whenever I found it online. I didn't start recording the Saturday Night's Main Events until after WrestleMania 2. So this initial season, let's call it, these first few Saturday Night's Main Events, I don't have the same connection as I do to the 86, 87, you know, 88 ones. Because I didn't see them a hundred times. I saw them once. Same here. I only saw this when it happened, and uh, I wasn't ready to record. So it's kind of really fun to watch it again, sort of, for the first time. Yeah, very much. And again, this is such a different look coming from dark studio wrestling, uh, Madison Square Garden darkness, now here, big bright lights, 
Uh, it's a really great opening. And, um, and well, I think they are at Madison Square Garden. It's just different lighting. Actually, it's at uh, they're at Uniondale, New York, in Nassau Veterans Memorial Coliseum. Oh, okay. Because there will be a reference to New York. I yeah, just, it's not MSG. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So the event was taped on May 10th and aired on May 11th. So unlike some other times when they take about a month or, you know, three, four, five weeks, this is a very quick turnaround. So it must have been pretty interesting given the changes in the production they were doing to say like, okay, we're going to record this and then we're going to do all this editing and all this post-production and then we're going to get it out on, you know, on TV the next night. So that's uh, probably a pretty interesting, um, you know, time that was and really probably stressing McMahon out, I can imagine, because he's probably used to having, like I said, weeks to prepare this stuff to put on TV as opposed to like less than 24 hours. For sure. Yeah. What What did we say? A month between? We're At the, times, yeah. I've seen. I've well, seen. Well, yeah. I mean, but in, in the first half, we referred to like the brawl. Didn't you say that one of them was a month between? Well, so, so, there's and, several Saturday Night events that get recorded and then don't air for like a month, and right. we've seen that. You know, remember some of our previous recordings with bonus material, like you know stuff when Steamboat was out with his injury before WrestleMania three. Like he was already back recording stuff, but you know. There's all this time going by, so yeah, they're not always in real time when they're when you're at the arena. Like whatever they're recording there, often wouldn't be used for a long time. So this event uh, did really well; it got an 8.8 rating, which was great for that time slot. So like, so NBC was thrilled that you know instead of putting on a rerun of Saturday Night Live, they could put on new programming, and it, for it to do that well. Uh, right. Well, yeah, you surprised me. You're talking about. The ratings, we haven't talked about the card yet. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. We're there now. To start at the end, we'll, oh, great. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. The reviews are in. The reviews great. are in. Yes, uh, yes. Uh, okay, uh, so nine, right, that's uh, big numbers. I, I know that uh, I, was, I wasn't going to be dragged away from that TV, <laughs> oh, you know. It, it would have had to have been kicking and screaming, wild horses, you name it. And so the, you know, the first thing we see when the show starts it's Cindy Lauper and Wendy Richter. Like, this is the kind of exposure they're getting. You know, women's wrestling at this time, 1985, is really not much of the product. It's a very small piece. There has, you know, there hasn't been much. They've hit something here with, with Cindy Lauper and Wendy Richter. And it's kind of surprising because knowing what happens to women's wrestling for many years after this, it's, it's interesting to see this brief window where it could be so highly exposed. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so uh, there are some dark matches. I think we get a good, we get a look at like one of the jobbers. We're not even sure which one it is. So there's no good matches on beforehand. Uh, when we come across it, we'll try and figure out who it is that's walking through. One of them does like a cameo in the background during one of the interviews. You see a, a wrestler leaving before one of the matches. It's pretty funny. So uh, of course we get Hogan and T. Uh, they do their promo before the the reel starts, and then the music kicks in. <laughs> It's not the music we're wanting. Heartbreaking. Oh, man. It is so disappointing that uh, McMahon or whoever won't spring for the copyright price to play the songs that uh, originally aired. And uh, it, it's just, you know, I can't enough express my disappointment in, uh, in this rewriting of history. I mean, egregious enough to, like play a different song that nobody's ever heard of in place of something that we had an emotional connection to. But they take it a step further when they insert support for wrestlers who weren't being cheered on the <laughs> evening. Like, it's really shameful and 
one of the times I noticed it the most was when they put in phony Hogan chants at the end of the Rumble. Of course, where yeah. Flair, yeah, that was like the worst example that I could detect at the time. But they've only gone into overdrive since with all the material yeah. that they released. So it, it's heartbreaking. But And not only that, I mean, here I was so excited for all of it. And I'm like, where's my music? Right. I will, In there's, there's a, several examples throughout this show of replace music, which just does not carry it, carry any weight. But, uh, you know, they did, Saturday's main event did change their theme song in, re, in, in real time, in about 87 or something like that, to the song we do here. And I do have a connection to that song, because I, you know, that song was on Saturday's main event for a long time. So it certainly is, a, it's much better than some of the weird, corny, made-up, you know, songs that are supposed to sound like something that aren't really anything. Well, that would be the WCW uh, nightmarish butchery of uh, (laughs) alternative rock hits in the 90s. So, you know, bands like um, Pearl Jam or Nirvana, you know, that were so (laughs) great, so important to our, you know, our musical tastes. Oh, man. They would do this elevator music, you know, you're on hold with the cable company from hell, backwards tune or a discordant minor, but you knew what they were ripping off. That was just so bad. So, man, you know, pay the money and, you know, throw a little money to the people who wrote Obsession. What's the name of the band? An Emotion. Right. You know, I I don't know if they're uh, living the high life. They're not exactly a household <laughs> name, you know. Right. So uh, it's a shame. I remember when they changed the theme song, the one thing I noticed was that there was a show on TV on Saturday afternoons that came on after our wrestling. Fashion TV. Fashion TV. And they had the song. <laughs> I was like, what the hell? I know. I would watch the credits because yeah. I love that song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, then I would lose the interest pretty quickly. Exactly. <laughs> Not to say that, uh, you know, just for the record, fashion was an incredibly uh, important part, too, of the pageantry, like yeah. Ric Flair's robes. Oh, so yeah, yeah. we know that. Savage, uh, all that stuff. Oh, yeah. yeah. What you wear is also really important in wrestling. So yeah. not to sound like a couple of brutes. Exactly. Yeah. So we get through a couple of those promos. They haven't actually developed their style yet. You know, that sort of quick reel of like several different wrestlers on the show doing a promo they kind of just highlight a couple of people so they haven't hit their you know they haven't really found their mark yet it looked like the opening of saturday night live because there you have t and hogan you know uh, on stage and and it's it's, you know basically it looks like a promo for wrestlemania yeah exactly yeah it's very it's very similar to that it's very reminiscent of that absolutely so the music hits it's supposed to be an emotion it's not you know we'll live with it um (laughs) you get some great clips of you know Hogan and Piper from different things, whether it's WrestleMania, you know, you get, you get, uh, I think there's a highlight of the one that made me laugh was Moolah drop kicking a ref. <laughs> right. Yeah. Oh boy. <laughs> All hail to the refs who take bumps. We salute you. And so going forward, these, this reel would basically tell you who was going to be on the show mostly for the most part. These highlights would usually be of people in matches that were coming up and stuff like that. So pretty exciting. We come in, we see Vince McMahon and Jesse Ventura. And Jesse Ventura looks like he just stepped off of our beloved AWA program. I mean, he's got (laughs) the same glasses and facial hair and hairdo, and he's in a tie-dye pink tuxedo. And man, does he look just, it's such a, he looks fantastic. He's flamboyant and masculine and outrageous, and he's such a great talker. We love Jesse. 
and you know, Jeff and I haven't seen the likes of Hogan, the likes of Jesse, Mean Gene, Bobby Heen, and all these different people. We haven't seen them since they left the AWA. So it's so neat to finally go from like only getting those magazine pictures. Here we go, finally watching them live and in color again. Can you give us a little more specific? Uh, how long were we deprived? Two or three years? Well, Hogan left December '83, and then throughout '84 into '85, everybody left. So, like you know, Heenan was gone before. You know, obviously he's he's at WrestleMania. I don't have the dates in front of me. I apologize, but you know, each of those people leave, and and there's different. When Jesse left, they they went on TV and called him a coward. <laughs> That was the way they dealt with it. Yeah, the AWA. (laughs) They said he left the territory because he was chicken. (laughs) It's pretty good. So yeah, we get we get into the show. They they McMahon and Jesse set it up for us, and we get Blassie and Sheik and Volkoff and George Steele coming to the ring, and they're in the ring, and they do they go to Mean Gene for an interview with the heroes, which includes Captain Lou Obano and this six man team of the U.S. Express and Ricky Steamboat. And Ricky Steamboat's looking pretty interesting because he's got this U.S. jacket on and he's got a Hawaiian lei because they're trying to obviously push his his heritage. Um, but I, I want to stop there for one second. My memory, again, only having seen that the one time, it's I could have sworn in my memory that the six-man tag wasn't Ricky Steamboat, that it was Danny Spivey, which, you know, of course makes no sense because when you go and look, he wasn't even there at the same time that Barry Windham was there. Well, quite so. And, uh, in fact, Dan Spivey replaced Barry Windham and the U.S. Express, and they kept going for a while after Windham's departure. So I guess that's obviously... Yeah, it all ties in my head of, like, he became part of the U.S. Express, so they must have all been there together. At the time being that you're referring to, right, they've all got the matching jackets, right? Yeah. And uh, it looks like we got a Freebird thing going on here. (laughs) A new six-man tag force to be reckoned with. That's right. And uh, as we noted earlier... at this point, it seems that uh, Steamboat is teamed with just about everybody on the roster. Santana <laughs> yeah. and Snooka. Just your dog. And yeah, yeah. He's, he's so just he's everywhere. Really searching for an identity here. <laughs> yep, yep. So th- the good guys come out. And he's going to get one real soon. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to put Steamboat on the map. <laughs> Dig it. <laughs> so they come out to the ring, and we get this really bad elevator music, as Jeff has alluded to. So uh, instead of getting Bruce Springsteen's Born in the USA, which is the, the song they were coming out to at that time, um, yeah, we get this weird sort of trying to sound like Americana or something. Well, they use some of the same lyrics. Like, yeah. It's yeah. just really cringy. Yeah. Oh, Lord. But if you take away the audio for a moment, the visual is so great because it just, everything looks so big time and they get I, in that ring. And I recommend you uh, turn down the audio on your, you, <laughs> of what you're watching yeah. and you line up the actual song and let that blast on your phone and your earbuds. You know, <laughs> I say stick it to the man and recreate the truth. That's and right. just in your head, imagine, like look at the expression on the faces of the audience and imagine what they sounded like hearing that song and how you might have felt because this other music is garbage and it's they're selling us a pack of lies yes several years ago you could just go out and watch all of these old saturday night's main events on youtube or whatever channels and they were the original audio and everything and over the last few years they've all kind of disappeared there is shh don't tell anybody the second episode of the Saturday Night's Main Event I can still find online, which the original uh, audio. So we'll definitely be taking advantage of that as we review that show. So the match is it's pretty neat. I I don't know if I've seen a match quite play out like this. There's usually there's a back and forth, and usually the bad guys will take advantage and at some point and really you know start beating up the good guys. 
But that's not what we see here. We see quick tags between Steamboat Rotundo and 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 Wyndham. Wyndham, and they just hold the advantage like throughout. They are just continually getting the upper hand and beating up Volkov and Sheik. And you know they're not really like they're not taking much damage themselves. And they're doing lots of you know lots of like you know they're not doing anything too devastating, but they're just constantly getting the upper hand. There is a point in this match where Ricky Steamboat just really like looks like a Superman. Like he does a drop kick off the top rope, which I don't think I've ever really seen him do. Like it doesn't it didn't seem familiar. Um, he did some really good moves right after a Road Warrior worthy power slam. <laughs> yeah, he did a really good power Two finishers. slam. Finishers. Yeah, he nailed them. And those are beautiful. <laughs> There's a great match. And, and just to point this out, we're not sitting here trying to go blow for blow for blow. Or, you know, go watch the show. And we're just trying to give a little bit of a feel of what the match was like. And, you know, some of the funny mo- moments of it. There's a great... Speaking of which... Yeah. George the Animal Steel. Oh, yeah. my God. Well, you right know. before that. And then you come in with this. The sunset flips. So oh, yeah. Ritz Rotundo does this really awkward standing sunset flip on Nikolai Volkov. But they're too close to the corner. So no like, hope of a pinball. Yeah, no. And then, like, right after that, Wyndham comes in. And he does a more traditional sunset flip. But same thing again. They end up, like, in the ropes. So there's just no chance of it. And then yeah. sunset, sunset flops. So for the first time in the match, in comes George Steele. And go ahead, man. This guy, he is so, he is like the best character. Almost, I can't think of a funnier, more committed performance to a, uh, you know, well, George the Animal Steel is this hairy character, and <laughs> he doesn't speak English per se. He needs a handler, you know. And uh, well, Kamala would be similar, but their shtick there is that he just doesn't speak the language. He's yeah. a tribal guy, and you know, doesn't speak English. But George doesn't appear to speak any language <laughs> right. except for ooh. Ah, and just like he, you can say Elizabeth. Well, that's right. He's got he's got a vocabulary that's extremely limited, and uh, I think his he, stuffed animal is called mine or something like that. Well, he was. Um, this is a later part of his career, George yeah, Animal Steel, sure. and I used to get frustrated. Uh, when I wanted uh, better matches, more wrestling, you know, and George would sort of thwart the whole idea of a wrestling <laughs> match. Right. Because it's just a matter of time before he eats the turnbuckle and then you're done. It right. always led to the same result, you know? You eat yeah, a turnbuckle. Like endless and- disqualifications. <laughs> exactly. But I now realize what a genius this guy He's is. He's really funny. His commitment to the bit. Even just just the first moment he came in the ring, I think he's in there with Barry Windham, just, oh, just boogie, waving boogie, his arms voodoo, and kind of, yeah, like, kind of focus, focus. Oh my oh, god, fuck, it's hilarious. <laughs> he is really great. And then he was in uh, great movies, or at least one anyway, yeah. a great movie. Um, it was called. It was about Plan Nine from Outer Space, but it was actually, I believe, that was called Ed Wood. I yeah. think. Okay. Yeah. Phew. Johnny Depp, and well, he was great in that. And yeah. uh, I just think that. A performer like George Steele could probably play any role. Yeah, well, he was a smart guy. He was a teacher. You know, he was. You know, he he didn't just wrestle and stuff like that. And he was a main eventer at one point. I I think he had title shots against like people like Backlund, Pedro Morales. I'm sure he probably had title shots even against Bruno. Maybe like yeah. as Jeff said, he was around a long time. Well, in a future episode, we'll we'll revisit some of those older matches as we're. You know, going further in depth on uh, George and Animal Steel. He'll be around for a while. Yeah. So. 
he gets into like you know as we said he comes in with Barry Windham and he kind of does this hocus pocus and they start slugging it out and he he kind of does throw some punches back and more than Sheik and Volkov did that's for yeah, sure and they look and, good but he doesn't yeah. he doesn't take too many shots from Windham and then he just turns around and he goes to the corner to retreat and, and get a tag and just inexplicably <laughs> Sheik and Volkov just drop off the apron and they abandon him in the ring and he's pretty confused and he's so Barry Windham after waiting for a couple of seconds almost like a gentleman finally goes okay well he kind of shrugs and then he rolls in from behind and, and pushes steel into the ropes and does the backwards roll so the rolling reverse cradle and you know gets him really flopped over and one two three so a quick pin and the match is over that's right but we have a whole post-match storyline yeah which is of course you know these two coward heels the world tag team champions by the way who yep. abandoned their colleague and uh blassie is uh, of course also they all <laughs> <laughs> they come in and they attack Steel. yeah um, yeah that's right and uh he does his his boogie woogie hokey pocus pocus he gets and, at the turnbuckle <laughs> yeah. he clears the ring of uh, volkoff and chic and yeah. we have a a face turn. For yeah, George this Animal is, you know, Steel. villain George Steele for me was only on things like Coliseum Video because the first time I got to see him was the, was the night he turned into a, a you know, baby face. And then from that point forward, of course, he's a good guy. Yeah, in, and case, then, in case you uh, aren't a hardcore wrestling fan, if you get cheered, you're called a baby face. If you get booed, you're called the, you're called a heel. <laughs> Most people will know that already. Yeah, if you don't already know that, then we really thank you for listening because yeah. I'm not sure I'm not sure how you found us. <laughs> so, you know, I, I forgot to mention this in the earlier interview. I love the setup of Mean Gene's interviews because he's kind of in the entranceway, like, so you can see into the arena behind him. He's not backstage with, like, a backdrop like they would do later. He's, you know, it looks more live. You know, he's he's right there. And that's what I was talking about when he's doing that interview before the match with the U.S. Express and Ricky Steamboat and Captain Lou. That's when we see, you know, whatever jobber it is kind of <laughs> walking by in the background. So, Well, the downside of that, of course, is that, uh, you know, how often can you pull the shtick of the backstage brawl, you know, every after every match? Because yeah, if you yeah. stop guy A and then by guy B is coming down the path, then, yeah. you know, there's going to be one more confrontation at the <laughs> interview area. So post-match, we get Blassie talking to Mean Gene with Sheik and Volkov complaining that George Steele wouldn't tag at the right time, which just makes no sense. And then we see George coming back because there's a reunion with Captain Lou gets in there, you know, in the ring to settle down George Steele because he used to manage him when they were both heels. And uh, so then George comes up from behind and starts attacking, I think, a cheek. And it's, it's quite comical. It's pretty good. I get a good laugh yeah, out so of it. That was a pretty fun match. A lot of, and did, uh, did we give it the time of that match? Yeah, I'll grab that. You know, it, this I would have to say, to be honest, like my memories, this match is the thing I remembered the most about like the whole thing. I don't know why it stood out so much, but just that heel turn. And the U.S. Express, even the, my wrong, my wrong version of the U.S. Express, it just that was the strongest memory I had of this whole of this whole card. So I know all of the matches are actually very short, which is typical for this day. But uh, you know, this age of wrestling, it was six minutes and thirty seconds. Uh huh. Okay, so that moves us. You know, and they they edit out the commercials for you. So we come back, and we have a very unique segment. And it's not on the set that we're used to seeing it from the syndicated TV. It's kind of in the ring the way they do it in modern wrestling, which I don't like. But I'm going to give an exception for this because it's kind of a special event. And uh, Jeff's going to take us away on this. Yeah, well, kind of as in right in the square middle of the ring. <laughs> yep, yep. <laughs> so it is a uh, 
quintessential Piper's Pit. Well, I guess I see your point now, what you're making. We're used to Piper's Pit being in a really cool-looking set off, uh, you know, off to the side. But this has the crowd in the background, as we've uh, indicated. So we are following up the WrestleMania storyline, Rowdy Roddy Piper and his personal bodyguard, Cowboy Bob Ace. That's right. Cowboy Bob Orton with the cast are interviewing Paul, Mr. Wonderful Orndorff. Mr. Wonderful Paul Orndorff. Ooh, oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and uh, Cal Redmond shout out. That's right. And they're playing out this long storyline of how at WrestleMania, Orndorff actually uh, was the one to get pinned and Piper and Orton abandoned him, much like Sheik and Volkov abandoned George the Animal Steel. We had this in-ring, you know, storyline from WrestleMania, which is still not settled. So Piper is interviewing Orndorff, and uh, in short order, he calls him a loser, and things get <laughs> heated really quick. But one of the best, I mean, Bob Orton is trying to get behind That's right. Mr. Wonderful, and Piper's trying to get Mr. Wonderful to sit. So the tension is wonderful. I mean, forgive the pun. The tension is really awesome because they're, don't do, do it, don't do it. You know, if you think if Wonderful sits down, then Bob Orton's going to get behind him and club him with the cast. And then, yeah. oh no, they're going to pull all their dastardly stuff. So Mr. Wonderful's wise to it. He won't sit down. And Piper's like, sit down, sit down, sit down. And he's like, I'm not sitting down. And, and, he, and he starts shouting at Bob Orton. And he's like, get in the corner. Dunce. You imbecile or something? No, he's like, get in the corner, dunce. Yeah. And then Bob Orton's walking before he realizes he's just been called a dunce. He's like, oh, wait, wait, wait. He yeah, turns he's, around. He stops in his tracks. Yeah. It's great. Because yeah. it seems like a reasonable request. Yeah. And then. Piper's saying, sit down, sit down. He's like, you sit down first, you know. And Ladies so, first. Ladies first, <laughs> right, because Piper's wearing the kilt. So Piper, though, does a wonderful job of splitting duties between conducting an interview and maintaining the heat, you know. So right. he's got to let his dignity go a little bit. Yeah. And he's like, okay, fine, fine, I'll sit down, I sit down. So he sits <laughs> down, and uh, at one point, you know, it's so great because Orndorff barks orders like and they he's so menacing and loud that they actually follow his commands before they realize that they're being talked to like a couple of dogs and he's like sit stay yeah, <laughs> and, they, right. and they both yeah. do it and then they're like oh, God. And piper pulls a great bump almost yeah. when he's realized that like he's followed orders like a dog so anyway it's it's really probably the now that i think about it the best piper's pit i've ever seen and piper Piper is just awesome. Could be the best Piper's pit of all time. And Orndorff is just, uh, you know, getting the best comedy material because Piper is such a great setup man for these gags. Now, the genius of this tension is that these guys actually haven't come to blows since the great WrestleMania scandal where Orton and Piper abandoned Orndorff in the ring. So, you know, usually that all happens on the same card, like the, the enemies uh, turn on each other and they're fighting right away. But no, this is uh, a longer form of storytelling and it really works <laughs> because, as I said earlier, uh, Orndorff has a, a change of personality after Wrestlemania he continues to wrestle Hogan and he's losing uh, the matches but he's getting all the respect from the fans because he shakes Hogan's hand afterwards like I said um, so okay back to Piper's pit they've never actually punched up this is finally the proper fallout where uh, you know 
Piper blames Orndorff. Of course, <laughs> at WrestleMania, you know, it was the cast, really, that course, led yeah. to Orndorff uh, losing. So pretty rich. They should be blaming Bob there. <laughs> exactly. But egos are involved. It's the perfect heel booking for Piper to say, it's your fault. Yeah. You and, he, and he's right. It's so great. It's a terrific confrontation confrontation between, you know, big egos, you know, uh, like perfect athletes, guys that like, I never lose, you know. It's And, uh, you know, then there's whole, uh, Piper's been really playing this like we never lost nothing we're a couple of we're winners and uh so it's a great confrontation you got your shoulders pinned to the mat brother let's 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 be real here and uh and and it's not like clench fists and like i'm gonna kill you like that's that's you know yeah the whole time he's doing it he's always he's always almost like physically saying like whoa whoa whoa, don't do anything yeah but i'm gonna keep saying like bad shit (laughs) yeah how much trash talking can you take to your face yeah yeah uh and eventually, Orndorff has had enough trash talking because <laughs> Piper finally crosses a line and he's like, yeah, I'll fight you. I'll slap you as quick as you can. But hey, I, I think you're a piece of garbage. Piece of garbage starts, you know, almost poking him in the <laughs> chest. And that's where Orndorff is like, you know, has had enough. And then when uh, Piper references his family, he's like, you keep my family out of it. You can actually really hear that Southern accent. Yeah, in yeah, Orndorf, yeah. I think at this, uh, because he's from Florida, right? Yeah. Right. And yeah. Um, and some of those Floridians, you know, have accents and some don't. It's really interesting. Yeah, yeah. Kind of like the Tom Petty thing, you know, like it's, you know, he's got that drawl if you listen to him <laughs> talk. Anyway, so, man, I just love this section. So now they're on their feet and Piper, you know, you think that Piper's going to buy like, we'll book a match, we'll sign it, we'll make the date. And you, you think it's going to go down that road because <laughs> Piper is like not going to fight. Yeah. And so uh, Piper says, you know what? I'm just going to, I'm taking my ball and I'm going home. And he <laughs> You know, turns his back on Orndorff, and then I'm not sure what Piper thinks he's how he's gonna surprise him. Looking for a sucker punch, yeah. (laughs) But Orndorff's got his eyes on him the whole time. So I was like, you know, Orn um, Piper makes as if to leave, but instead he, you know, swings around with a huge punch. But Orndorff sees it coming naturally, blocks it, and you know, clobbers him. Uh, Orton runs in for a reverse elbow standing beautiful bump they're both yeah. down things are looking great and then Orndorff's gonna pile drive Roddy <laughs> Piper Piper makes the mistake of not putting on his wrestling gear <laughs> and he's got the blue with the white Y fronts on <laughs> you know a little bit I love of, how Orndorff like is shaking Piper's head back and forth before he right. pulls him in for the pile driver <laughs> I forgot yeah it's like loosen up his neck a little yeah, bit yeah. like a air face wash you know in the snow like here take that you like that so after loosening him up, Orndorff gets Roddy Piper in the pile driver position, and Piper's kilt falls, and you get a peekaboo at his blue <laughs> tidy whities except for their tidy blueies with the Y, <laughs> with the white Y. And uh, it, there we go. It looks like he's going to get pile drived on his own show, but Cowboy Bob. Orton comes from behind and clubs Orndorff with oh, his man. cast. And uh, I know you particularly like how they sold the damage yeah. of the cast. But before we get to that, or- Orndorff takes a really cool and <laughs> sick looking bump. Uh, he he falls out between like almost the bottom, well, the second and the bottom rope. Yeah. And uh, he goes almost face first. It looks he, like it. Yeah. Yeah. The camera works a bit tricky, but yeah. It re- so he's dazed and injured. You would yeah, think. Very dramatic kind of spill out of the ring. Yep. And, uh, Mr. T is aware of the help that this new hero needs. And so yeah. Mr. T in his tracksuit jogs down to the ring, holding his chest flexor as well. The same <laughs> bar that Rick Rude used That's to right, like. Yeah. An attacked warrior with that the pulls down <laughs> years later. Uh, and so Mr. T comes to 
Paul, Mr. Wonderful Orndorff's rescue, and he escorts Paul Orndorff back to the safety of the backstage area, and we cut to commercial. Yeah, he left with the heels victorious in the Which ring in a way. Quite rare, you <laughs> exactly. know. It's always the uh, <laughs> it's always the uh, the heels who hit the bricks, so to speak. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, so they, they go to commercial, and then when we come back from commercial, we're right back at it, because Piper and Orton are still in the ring, and we're about to get Mr. Hulk Hogan. Does the Hulk click? All right, I thank you very much, Vince McMahon, Hulk Hogan. Hulk Hogan, you have just seen what has happened in Rowdy Roddy Piper's pit. You know, some mean Gene, I saw what went down in Piper's pit, brother. This is just typical of the kind of dudes we need to get out of the WWF, you know. I'm just so happy, man. It's Mother's Day coming up real soon because I got a special surprise. This is going to be a special match for my mother, brother, and I can't think of anybody else I'd rather get in the ring than Cowboy Bob Orton, the dude with a busted up arm. We're going to see how bad it is tonight, E.G. All right, on the subject of Paul Orndorff, I'm very curious to get your reaction to his big change over the past few weeks. Well, you know what's so funny, man? The dude was going around for so long busting people up, man. And all of a sudden, he felt what it was like inside to have some people behind him, man. All these Hulkamaniacs out here, brother, they got behind the dude. I see a total change of heart in the man. I wish him the best, and I just hope he keeps it up. Can you dig it? I can dig it. Cowboy Bob Orton, a cast on the arm, a title defense for you. I don't know what you're going to do. Well, what's he going to do when the Hulkster runs wild on you, daddy? I thank you very much, heavyweight champion of the world, Hulk Hogan. Now let's go up to ringside for the introduction. So that brings us to basically the main event, the world heavyweight champion Hulk Hogan defending against Cowboy Bob Orton, Ace. Now, one of the things to note about this setup is that Dick Ebersol looked at wrestling in this time slot kind of the way they looked at Saturday Night Live. So unlike most cards where the main event would go on last, they knew their audience would get would get lower and lower as the night went on. So typically on Saturday Night's main event, the main event would be first or second. It would generally start within the first half hour because they wanted to capitalize on that, like, big audience. In some ways as well, the end of the show would sort of be like Saturday Night Live where they would do sort of riskier sketches or something like that. So they'd have their less, let's call it, their less important matches they would usually save for the end, which is the way this night's going to lay out. Corporal Kirshner. Or something something <laughs> like that, yeah. Some of the nights, whoever it might be, or or the match that's a bit more of an obvious, like, oh, Kamala versus Lanny Poffo. Okay, we already know what where this is going before the match even starts. We come back from commercial, Piper and Orton are in the ring, Orton's ready to wrestle, and then here comes the very familiar music, the very familiar strains of uh, Real American, but no, 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 that's not what we should have been hearing. We should have been hearing Eye of the Tiger. So again, the crowd's a little bit muted, a little bit dulled, not quite getting what we want, but out comes Hogan with Mr. T. He sure does. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I mean, I've already poo-pooed their cheapness on the music, so, yeah. uh, you know, um, you know, I just, uh, I, I can't get into it until the action starts, because I, yeah. you know, uh, maybe I'll start to get used to it, or it won't be as important at certain times, but, right. uh, yeah, enough, uh, negativity out of me. Right, so Piper does a great job on the outside in Orton's corner, just, like, barking, being really active, you know, being really animated, making himself, like, a part of the match, the cameras, you know, always following him and following T. And I think Bob Orton's like a fabulous performer. I mean, we kind of saw like this era sort of make towards the end of his his prime. He's kind of like starting. He's going to be quick, very quickly moving away from this sort of main event type status that he had as as 
Piper's bodyguard to something much less important. But in this era, he was just, he was so great. And I thought he was such a good performer. He sells so awesome for Hogan. He's just bouncing all over the place. And one of the interesting things at some point in the match, uh, Hogan's actually going to work on that arm with the cast. And uh, he's slamming his arm into the, into the, you know, the post on the outside and you see the steps that they use to get into the ring. And unlike today where they have these big metal, I'm not quite sure what they're made out of, you know, giant steps. It's just like these little wooden, it's like these tiny wooden steps. And it kind of just stands out as like a different time, a different, you know, a different era. Like it looks so much different. And the, in the space between the ring and the, and the railing, everything's like a different setup than what people are accustomed to now. So this match, it's pretty good. I What I like of this era is Hogan hasn't 100% developed his like, step-by-step match you know he doesn't everything doesn't happen in a very particular order the way it would sort of become become traditional for him to like sort of do things get beaten up have his comeback pin the guy so there's a lot of great moments in in the match so Hogan has a mini Hulk up and he nails Orton with this huge clothesline and he drops an elbow drop a bit different and enough that you know with that in that day to get a pin and Orton kicks out. So I was like, that's really cool, you know? And then when, when he takes him in the corner, he's giving Orton the fist, and Orton gives him a front, you know, front uh, atomic drop. <laughs> I love Jess, Jesse just, you know, so cheering for his men in the, you know, in that match. So it's great. Yeah. I think that the matches kind of become more predictable and boring uh, going forward. I hope to be proven, cor- hope to be corrected. Well, I, but, I uh, think they, for a, a little while longer, we have a little bit longer, you know, it's it's somewhere in 86 where he sort of maybe develops that sort of patternized sort of, you know, hey, A, B, C, D. I just made a word up there, but. Patronizing. <laughs> Patronizing, yeah. Actually, I like patternized. No, it's, that's, <laughs> I, it may not be in the dictionary, but who cares? <laughs> that's right. It's, it's, yeah. it's a wrestling podcast. We it's can both. say whatever we want. It is patronizing too, though. I mean, yeah. it, it did get, you Yeah, know, you just knew what was going to happen. I always like the idea of when the Hulk when Hulk would Hulk up, it's just like get the hell out of the ring, <laughs> just yeah. run away, just bail out, Bob, bail out. Jesse's calling to him, bail right. out of there, get, get out of there. Nobody does. <laughs> they never listen. They're just as persistently staying in the ring as Flair is to climbing to the top. That's right, yeah. rope, and <laughs> getting caught. Flair's been successful at the top rope, I think, once in his entire career. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, but one of the things I like is that they they didn't sort of sell out Bob Orton. So there's a there's a point pretty late in the match where. Orton actually lifts Hogan up onto the top rope for his superplex. And instead of taking the superplex and then kicking out, Hogan just pushes him off. And I really like that because instead of him, like, basically destroying the superplex and saying, oh, this isn't a finishing maneuver anymore, he's just going to prevent it from even happening. And I much prefer that to the, you know, to, to Hogan doing the kick out and having the big comeback. Well, that was a special treatment for the DDT. Exactly. They protected the DDT for quite some time yeah. by doing exactly that. Like, if you took it, you were supposed to, you know, yeah. no matter who you were. And that was part of what made Jake so exciting. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So I just want to pause just briefly, now that we're talking about superplexes, because I, I really always loved that move. <laughs> and one of the things that developed in more modern wrestling, let's say into the 2000s, is... This change from being a regular superplex, the way Bob Orton did it, and the way Barry Windham did it when he was in the Four Horsemen and stuff like that, to basically 95% of the times now, it's the top rope superplex, meaning that both competitors are standing precariously, ba- trying to balance themselves on the top rope, and it's quite a ridiculous like scenario. There's no realistic way that the person who's giving the superplex could really control the situation very good. They have no balance up there. And, it, you know, it's a, it's a tremendous move, but when everybody does it, it kind of takes away from the value of it. I mean, I, do you remember the first time you saw the top rope superplex? <clears throat> top rope superplex? Yeah. No. 
for me, it was the wrestling classic, Dynamite Kid on Randy Savage. Uh, that was pretty incredible. Yeah, yeah. But again, now if every single person was doing it, and again, now it's it's there's two things about that. One, everybody's doing top rope superplex instead of normal superplex. And two, it's not just somebody's move. Like, Bob Orton is like pretty much the only person that did the superplex back in that, that time frame for the WWF. There was a storyline where Ricky Steamboat had a feud with them, and he was doing them, and Bob Orton was getting mad that Ricky Steamboat was using his move. But nowadays, like, everybody does superplexes. They're in almost every match. So... Wrestling could learn the idea of like limit who does what and don't you know don't overdo it. That's true. Yeah, you're preaching to the choir here, brother. <laughs> so yeah, so Hogan does does a Hulk up, but it doesn't finish the match. It's great. Like you know, he goes through, he does the Hulk up, and he does what you would assume would be like bang, 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 and we're gonna see a pin, but we don't. And you know, Orton's Orton's able to sort of get out of that for the moment. And when Hogan does finally get him and nails him with the big leg drop. It's beautiful. Piper comes in with his great fist to the face, and it's a DQ, and I'm, honestly, I'm not even sure how the ref saw it. If you really watch his head, he does not look. It really looks like Piper from the outside sneaks that punch in through the ropes, and how well, does the ref see it? Mr. T tells him. Oh, that's see? right. Yes, Mr. T's a Hollywood honest good guy. <laughs> that's right. He says, hey, look at that fool cheating. <laughs> yeah, so Roddy immediately slides in and starts putting the boots to Hogan. And it's a two-on-one, so T hesitates for a half a second, and then he gets in there, and uh, he starts coming in at Piper with these body blows into the corner, but Piper's, like, not selling for him at all. That doesn't help. I mean, you could have at least done him that favor, because T doesn't look particularly comfortable. No. And, uh, you know, that didn't help, Roddy. Yeah. I know. Yeah, that's that goes back to maybe what we talked about in another show where there was maybe they didn't get along that well the the two. So Piper wasn't really the most um you know he wasn't wasn't obliged to you know put his best forward form. So Orton comes in and gets gets T in the back and they stomp him down. So sees T has to sell his back and take himself out pretty much. At this point, Hogan's back up on his feet and ruff ruff he's ready to <laughs> he's ready he's ready to fight. So Piper takes off her shirt and it's like this two on one but. T really, like, kind of didn't take that much damage, so it's kind of unrealistic that he's still down. It's botchy. Yeah, it's kind of botched. Uh, uncomfortable, uncertain of what uh, what to emphasize, how injured it. Yeah, he, sh- he didn't take that much damage, and so he's standing there, you know, without drawing the attention of the heels, and uh, it looks awkward. Yeah. So what it does, though, it, what it does set up and allow for is just as the, the, the two-on-one's about to maybe take place, and you're not sure if T's going to get himself involved again or not, in comes Mr. Wonderful. Yeah, and boy, do they look terrific together, Orndorff and Hogan side by side, you know? Yeah, like as we saw in the clip from after this that we talked, yeah. that we like so much. Chemistry um, there. Yeah, it just it's such a, such a brilliant thing, and I don't think we really saw enough of it. As a kid, I kind of remember being like, they're friends? Oh, they're breaking up? Like, it was sort of, you know, like it was a short little thing, but it was really like a, a year-plus-long story. Yeah, uh, Paul Paul Orndorff at his prime, right here. Yeah. Well, I mean, actually, and and, 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 and as then, you say, yeah, and it, then, it carries on. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Orton and Piper hit the bricks. <laughs> yes, as any good coward would. Okay, well, that's going to take us to commercial break, and when we come back, it's going to be the women's title match. So the next match is a women's world title defense. Wendy Richter has the belt, and she is defending against former champion, the fabulous Moolah, a legendary figure who uh, has probably a couple of decades on I Wendy. I say 28 years she was champ. Wow. Before she lost to Wendy. I see. Wow. Okay. So at this time, she looks like she's about 55 or something, and... Uh, 
Wendy's in her heyday. She looks fabulous. Actually, she had a cowgirl gimmick before being the rock and wrestling icon right, with yeah. Cindy Lauper. Anyway, um, so there, these two played a big part of setting up on the MTV shows, as we course, mentioned yeah. earlier. So, Moolah cuts a promo before the match with Mean Gene, where you can see all the fans. It's like, like you said, it's a really cool style yeah. of scenery behind you. And she's got this sheepskin or, you know, the scroll <laughs> rolled up. Oh, that's right. Yeah, the ye old preclam- proclamation. And um, she's talking about how Cindy's gotten involved in the matches prior to this event, and she's had enough, and she's gone to the head of the WWF, and she's had Cindy Lauper barred from ringside. <laughs> Unfortunately, skipping to the ring entrances, when Cindy and Wendy Richter make their entrance in real life... Well, they, they have an interview, too. Well, they do, yeah. So Mean Gene conducts an interview with Wendy Richter and Cindy Lauper with that great visual of the... Uh, aisle for the ring entrance behind them and the long-term longevity and strength of the rock and roll connection with wrestling is in question here as cindy flubs the headline (laughs) event that she just participated in you just tell me what happened in wrestling mania they do i think the only thing it's important to note is that the interview is all about cindy like when when he's basically on mean gene's backside she's kind of ignored you know it's all about cindy lopper that's a good point. I guess they're still really putting their eggs in that basket, the For whole sure. MTV angle. Yeah. And uh, Wendy wants to be heard, so she's shouting off the mic, and, you know, Gene's <laughs> got, you know, somebody in his left ear and Cindy in his right ear, so he's like, uh, just a minute, Wendy, without even looking at her. <laughs> <laughs> Wait your turn. So, yeah, Wendy seems to even get a little frustrated with her lack yeah. of airtime. Yeah, that's right. Quite so. And then the ring entrance is uh, one of these cases where the fans are far too close. It even looks like Cindy gets groped, but she doesn't react like she's been sexually assaulted. It just looks uncomfortably, you know, vulnerable. She looks uncomfortably vulnerable. Actually, every wrestler in the card, or almost every match, somebody gets grabbed or yanked, not always in a violent or even, you know, like I said, sexual way, but more than one wrestler stops his, you know, entrance to kind of deal with who has ever, you know, anchored. Yeah, people grabbing at them, holding on to them, yeah, or too whatever. Close. Yeah. Yeah. Um and it should be girls just want to have fun. Yes. But it's this awful elevator music version of uh something that once was a rip off of a pale shadow of an imitation <laughs> of a mockery of a farce. <laughs> And uh, so you have to overlook that. I'm afraid. I'm afraid to say, but it does. You know, it gets my back up. Anyway, moving on. It's a pretty good match. Uh, we start, or, or rather, there is a commercial. <laughs> well, yeah. Okay. Um, right. Yes. Of course. Of course. Well, there. The setup has been very well laid out in front of us. So, Mula gives this scroll that looks like it's you know possibly 200 years old to <laughs> the Fink, and not only that. He opens it up and reads it, and it's kind of like see-through a little bit, you know, yeah. the way that paper can be in front of bright lights. Right. And it appears to be written in calligraphy. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Old English. <laughs> we, we hereby decree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I'm surprised it wasn't. I'm sorry, but when I see Howard Franklin, that scroll, and he starts reading in that, te- you know, that the, the dialect they're using, it's like, to me, all I hear is like, it's now time for the Royal Rumble. Like, you know, it just totally looks like that. Right, right. <laughs> So Cindy is barred from ringside, just like Moolah threatened to do. 
They cut to commercial. When we come back, Cindy's watching from the monitor, giving Wendy directions as if it's going to help. <laughs> A little bit of coaching from, you know, 400 yards away. Uh, anyway. Um, and so the match begins. And when we cut into it, Moolah's cheating. And of she's, course, yeah. Um, scratching eyes and dragging her face along the top rope and pulling hair. And there even appears to be in the, like the first minute of action, a foreign object that yeah, the, not uh, quite sure. <laughs> the referee turn, turns a blind eye to with some, some badly timed hiding and obscuring of the foreign yeah, object. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Moolah sticks it down her bosom and the ref appears to have no interest in his bosom. <laughs> <laughs> Can't say I blame him. Blame him. Anyway, actually, uh, I will give Moolah props you might think, like, let's get her out of here, but boy, does she ever come back to entertain WWE crowds, you know, yeah. at, in, in the future. And, like, she's an amazing, courageous lady, at least taking the bumps she did in oh, her 60s sure. and yeah. 70s. Anyway, so here she is in her prime, golden sort of prime. <laughs> 50s. Yeah. And a lot of cheating, and, you know, there's... Yeah, she kind of holds court most of the match. Like, she's, yeah. she's got Wendy down... Giving it to her, right? A good, a good uh, chunk uh, of the match on the uh, on on uh, a repeated viewing. Wendy does have more offense than I thought. So Wendy gets thrown out of the ring, and uh, Mula does a whole taunting the crowd where she plants her bottom, her feet on the bottom <laughs> rope. You know, yeah, I think she's chirping at Cindy because Cindy's in that direction, right? That's yeah, the, yeah, <laughs> yeah. That, that, that could well be. Yeah, and Richter comes in and gives her a drop kick, two feet. Two bum cheeks, yeah. that's a good one. And Mula <laughs> finds up outside. Yeah, Mula takes a big bump to that. You know, they didn't have a mat. Like, it was rare, but that's that era. WF didn't have the big blue mats. It was like, that's, that's just the concrete. Quite so. So it does, uh, Jesse calls, like, take it back into the ring, ladies. And it does. <laughs> and actually, uh, while Mula maybe does have the majority of the offense, Richter gets in there as well and, yeah. uh, you know, holds her own. Towards the finish, what we have is... Uh, Mula goes to body slam Richter, but instead of uh, actually lifting her off the ground, the weight shifts and Richter gets her in a small package and defends her belt successfully. And yeah. then Cindy Lopper runs down to the ring and they get to dance to this terrible music <laughs> garbage that Mystic Man put in there in place of girls just want to have fun. Yeah, I think that you can see, like, kind of like we said before the match started with the interview. They're so focused on Cindy Lauper. Like the moment the three count happens, the camera shifts to Cindy Lauper and totally focuses on her until she gets to the ring. It's all about Cindy Lauper. Like Wendy Richter is the wrestler in the ring and they're together, but you can tell WF realizes what's bringing eyeballs to the, you know, to the dance, so to speak. So there's a few things I notice when I think about this. For starters, it's that this in many ways is sort of the end of the peak of Wendy Richter. Like, I don't know if she ever again, before she leaves in the fall, if she ever has another, you know, match of this kind of significance. I, I she, you know, she really, she can't. I mean, they might have broadcast something on MSG Network or Prism or one of these kind of things, but that doesn't have this kind of, you know, showcase. So we know that later in the fall, there's going to be the original screw job with the spider lady, lady taking Mula under the mask, taking the belt away from Wendy Richter. And so this was, and she's not a part of, Wendy's not a part of, when she still is the champ, she's not a part of the Saturday main events in the fall. So it's kind of like the, the ship has moved on. So this is sort of like, you know, pre-WrestleMania, WrestleMania, and then this Saturday's main event is sort of the peak and then the downward slide 
of like basically the glory of like women's wrestling in 1985 in the WWF. And as we know, there's really not a lot of showcase of women's wrestling for like decades, basically. Like you have to get to the women's revolution in the 2010s to really get something to change. And I, you know, this is sort of where we're at. And when Wendy goes, Cindy goes with her. I think Cindy goes before her. You know, like Cindy's actually probably out of the picture by the fall. I think those last couple of months, there is no Cindy Lauper anymore. And and I wonder, had Cindy chosen to stick around more, if maybe would have seen the same effect of Mr. T. Because WrestleMania 1, Mr. T's this huge celebrity. By WrestleMania 2, it's already, his star has dropped several notches. A-team's ratings have tanked over that course of that year. There's a huge drop-off in, like, where they are in the rank- ratings in 85, compa- in 84, 85, compared to 86. Like, A-Team's totally on its way down. And Mr. T's star is on its way down. And I wonder if Cindy Lauper's, you know, sort of the excitement of her being involved in wrestling would have waned pretty quickly, too. So that by the time, if she's still hanging around, and if Wendy Richter was still in it, let's say, by the winter of 86, maybe it's this sort of, like, lesser-than arrangement that it's almost good that Wendy got out. She's like the free bird. She left when she's on top. <laughs> well, that's the only other um, team or wrestler single t- or anything that I remember seeing Cindy Lauper with. And I only know that because I Googled it and found that uh, Cindy Lauper had escorted the Freebirds to the ring. She and uh, her manager husband. Yeah. Uh, and I didn't know that back in the day because oh, the, free, yeah. the Freebirds were, uh, you know... In and bl- out so quick. Yeah, that I wasn't aware of them. I was definitely aware of their short cup of coffee with the WWF, but I was not aware of her their connection to Cindy Lauper until you pointed out. And we do have a bonus episode coming up where we touch on that a bit and we hear some of those... We actually got some audio from, like, you know, a, a Madison Square Garden or wherever they are. Maybe they're in Philly. But either way, it doesn't matter. We have that audio of, like, them going to the ring with Cindy Lauper and their Freebirds playing. And <laughs> I mean, like, it's just... It's so good. So, we'll you know, we'll hear that when you get to that... This would, yeah. Therefore, this does, I guess, represent Cindy's maybe. Is she even going to be on Saturday Night's Main Event again? I do not believe she's ever shown That's again. It. Yeah. I'm, I'm not saying that she's not on any more cards or not any more appearances, but, you know, this is the last big appearance. Right. So, rock and wrestling and moving on. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Just like that. Kind of. It, it comes and goes really quick. I feel like 86 is still part of rock and wrestling just because of all the same the characters, like the you know the wrestlers who are important are this kind of mostly the same. Um, but you're right. The connection is actually gone. Right. And uh, that Saturday morning cartoon also, that had Richter and Lou Albano yeah. and Moolah. I think she did occasionally make an appearance because Richter was, yes. you know, uh, driving the... Yeah, so, yeah, how about that? The first one kind of just... Uh, captures it all and then things change boom yeah we have a summer and then when we come back to the next season let's go to the next show i'm not going to call the next season because it's only the second ever episode but when we come back in the fall of 1985 a lot of things have changed so this is sort of the end of that you know wrestlemania rock and wrestling connection this is it it's here wow and it's over already goddamn (laughs) it only just started (laughs) not ready to go (laughs) okay let's figure out what's going on with that junkyard dog Okay, so it's time for the last actual match on the card, which starts with a mean Gene interview, and we see the JYD and his mom. Yeah, and, uh, you know, looks more like his older sister. Exactly, yeah, I'm having a hard time believing that's his mom. Yeah, or younger sister, but anyway. (laughs) um, 
Uh, however, you know there is a you know uh, there's a there's a, a certain anti-aging gene that they say that I won't say, but that they say, <laughs> and they're free to say it anyway. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Uh, yeah. But uh, that's right. And then she's got her her nice Sunday church-going clothes on, and she's a very dignified, you know, soft-spoken lady. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's like it's like a sweet thing, you know. It's not. Yeah. yeah there's there's no big angle here. Well, yeah, and I mean she said you brought her all the way from down south of New York City. How about it? That's right, that's right, Gene, that's right. <laughs> that's right. So we go to the ring, and as I alluded to in the opening, this match is not intended to be a Saturday Night's main event style match. It's they're sort of, you know, it's it's more of an enhancement match, and we see these in other ones, but this is a bit of a unique one because this isn't like a Lanny Poffo or a Coco Beware or somebody, you know, who you kind of are like, oh, okay, they're going to lose. This is an actual enhancement talent who Jeff was not aware of. And you sure a lot are of... dancing around that word jobber. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Come on. Yeah, for sure. Say what it is. So we get to see the Duke of Dorchester, Pete Doherty, is in the ring. At first, I was just really unimpressed. I'm like, hey, I thought this was only, you know, main event talent. <laughs> um, but right away... He uh, won me over because instead of just like a, a mild-mannered jobber raising his hand meekly, like acknowledging his, you know, announcement, this guy, <laughs> he already runs a victory lap. He airplanes, <laughs> he's like, ah! Right. He circles, you know, gets ready for takeoff. And, yeah. uh, and he also has a nice uh, sparkly green jacket. Yeah. And the first thing that occurred to me, I was like, Gary Oldman. That's right. <laughs> yeah, a little resemblance there, yeah, for yeah. sure. So I remember Pete Doherty, the Duke of Dorchester, from a couple of Coliseum videos where, as a kid, I wasn't impressed because I knew he was a jobber and I knew he was going to lose, but his matches would last quite long. And when you've only got 90 minutes, let's say, on one of these videotapes, you're like, oh, come on, you're taking up all the time. I want, like, you know, I don't, other good matches. Yeah. But this guy is someone, again, later in life, you look back and he's really entertaining, like, so animated and so, like, he just, he has a character. He's not just some, you know, just pasty white guy ready to get his ass kicked. He's like, he, he's there to, you know, put on a show. Well, the worst you could, thing you could say is forgettable. And uh, I will never forget him again, the Duke of Dorchester. <laughs> he's so good, yeah. So then we get Junkyard Dog coming to the ring with his mama. And we hear Grab Them Cakes, which is definitely a song we're used to hearing coming out with Junkyard Dog. But I noticed those muffled sounds, and I realized and looked it up, and it's, it should be Another One Bites the Dust. One of the classic rock and roll wrestling connections. Uh, I believe that uh, everybody had their sort of uh, song that meant wrestling to them, you know, at a certain time. Yeah. And in a certain place in America where JYD was huge, Bill Watts territory, I think it was yeah. Queens, Another One Bites the Dust, just everybody would just go crazy and pop for the Junkyard Absolutely, Dog. Absolutely, yeah. Which is why Vince recruited him and, you know. <laughs> yeah, he had to take him away from Bill Watts and uh -huh. part of his superstars. So yeah, he comes to the ring with his big chain and gets a chair. He's a gentleman, so he has a chair for his mom and gets her sitting at the ringside and Pete Doherty's, you know, being quite animated in the ring and, you know, barking at them and the match will go as expected. It's pretty funny. This Pete Doherty bumps around quite a bit for him. But the the best part of the match is when the Duke of Dorchester ends up on the outside of the ring and a little too close to Junkyard Dog's mum. And he looks over and he actually, for a moment, he threatens to strike her. And he's within striking distance as well. And I, I remember thinking, uh, watch out, the wrong bump. And, you know, it's going to be a big schmozzle. <laughs> a 260-pound right. man is going to fall on him. 260 pound woman. 
<laughs> so, of course, timing-wise, Junkyard Dog reaches over that top rope with both hands and grabs <laughs> Pete Doherty by the hair, and it looks quite painful. He lifts Doherty back up onto the apron right from the outside all the way up by his hair and drags him back into the ring. And uh, as we expect, the match ends with a thump power slam. Yeah, so I wasn't expecting to enjoy that one so much, but uh, what a hidden gem, Pete Doherty. <laughs> yeah, and of course, what we get after most of JYD's matches is him dancing in the ring, but instead of kids this time, he's dancing with his mom. How sweet on the Mother's Day special. That's right. So when we come back from commercial, we're going to we'll take a look at the Mother's Day party. So we come back to really what makes the difference between the WWF and the AWA a Mother's Day party, um, something that you just, you know, is much more in this realm of uh, cartoon Saturday morning program. Yeah. And um, however, it's amazing. <laughs> it is so <laughs> it's really funny. funny. Yeah, it's really great. Like I, as we were going into it, I was like, oh God, this is Cringe, what makes, you know, yeah. Like it's going to be terrible. Yeah. This is what is clownish about the WWF because it's very, I mean, like it's a party, but they're lined up <laughs> and there are heels at the party. Yeah, yeah they're all so, together. <laughs> so it looks pretty, you know. Staged. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it turns out to be gold. Mean Gene goes down the line and gets quotes from uh, from everybody and uh, I just, I love it. You know, uh, uh, it, it's it's tempting but um, I don't think I'll try to recapture every gag that happens but he does start with Junkyard Dog and it looks like possibly JYD's daughter there. I don't know. Anyway, there's a little girl there and then there's a lady from the okay. yeah his mom is there yeah, yeah but yeah there's like oh, I little, missed that yeah well, so yeah there's a basically a three foot uh, person okay. <laughs> yeah, 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 definitely yeah. she's in her lovely you know little flower dress or, or okay. you know she looks like a flower girl at a wedding but yeah because I I do know that there was one time JYD in real life had a daughter and they were that was when he was supposed to be blinded so they were right. getting the, getting the fans hot like JYD can't see his new baby girl oh, you know? wow. yeah they did an angle with that. So, I don't know. For a second, I just thought maybe that's really his daughter. Yeah. If it's really his mom, then maybe they really brought his daughter, too. Yeah, 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 for sure. But they don't talk to the little girl. Anyway, um, JYD does his thing, and they move on to some wonderful Sheik and Volkov, and they're complaining. (laughs) You know, my mother in Russia, she can't get here one day, invitation, not up to. He said something along the lines of, can't fly in a broom like your mother, or something like that. (laughs) But I'm skipping over. uh, uh, We have a classic, listen, Jean Min, my mother live in Tehran, how long is that to to get to her? (laughs) Oh, it's really good. good. Yeah, I know, I said I wouldn't do them all, but anyway. I gotta do Sheik. Yeah. And then uh, your favorite, you take the next one. <laughs> so the next one, Mean Gene comes up to Fred Blassie and there's, you know, an attractive uh, younger woman standing beside him. And Mean Gene's like, Fred Blassie, who, who's this woman? And he's like, That's my mother, Laura. <laughs> <laughs> this is your mother. And it's, he's talking to her. And beautiful, 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 isn't beautiful, she? Isn't she? <laughs> and then, like, the best part is Mean Gene sort of, Alan Richard Dawson from uh, Family Feud, starts leaning in for the kiss. <laughs> And he's like, yeah, yeah, what do you think you're doing? Chases, chases him away. Oh, that was really good. And uh, let's see. Um, then we actually, I think, uh, there are a couple of mothers, more mothers. You yeah. know, we don't know if they're actresses or not, but uh, Hogan. I suspect, I suspect that's really his mom. I think I've seen a picture of her. I think that's oh, her. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's funny. So they really have Hogan's mom, and he's uh, wearing a black Saturday Night's Main Event t-shirt. Yeah. I think that's what it says. I know it's black anyway. 
And they had a few of those T-shirts, actually. They were cutting promos in those T-shirts as well. Yeah, that's right. Really uh, hammer home the whole brand. Yeah. Yeah. And Cindy Lauper. Oh, wait, I forgot. Lou Albano has a poem. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, That's right. But it gets, like, so shouty that I couldn't even quite make it out. Yeah, it's Lou Albano gibberish. (laughs) Yeah. Then Hogan's mom and Hogan. Who, you know, is like, except for those guys, they're enemies, dude. <laughs> That's right. You know? He points out Volkov and Blassie and somehow doesn't mention Sheik. <laughs> yeah. <And laughs> Sheik's <there's>, okay. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're moving to the next guy and you see Hogan like, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> so he moves on down the line to Lopper and Richter. And uh, Lopper has her mom there. And yeah. pretty believable. Uh, and Richter just says, I know she's my mom's watching. Yeah, yeah. And uh, Cindy Lopper looks great with purple and orange in her. her you know, she just looks like the classic image of the 80s rock star she's uh, terrific and cute and sassy new york fits in perfectly with this yeah. opening episode and um everybody's having a good time until there's an interruption that's right then comes moolah in like the craziest outfit she's like space space you know outfit or something like that and these weird glasses with the dollar signs on them and she's just you know she just starts hurling insults back and forth right. calling cindy lopper a scarecrow and all yep. this stuff and i love cindy lopper at one point saying this is fashion <laughs> he's like what yep. do you call this and at one point the camera moves and you happen to notice a four foot mother's day cake <laughs> conveniently yeah, what's gonna happen here <laughs> And so, for sure, the confrontation turns to a bit of pushing and shoving, and uh, then it seems like, because it's Mean Gene and four ladies, they're like, okay, let's do a group hug that kind of falls over <laughs> under the cake, and oh, boy. And, and then uh, Cindy Lauper, you know, picks up one tier of the cake yeah. and, like, is going to smash it over Moolah's head, but it bounces off like the sponge that it is, and, you know, like, Moolah can't even take the bump. She's just like, oh, what a yeah. mess. <laughs> what Moolah, have you got? Moolah goes food fight style and gives a big whip of food and at that point I think Cindy Lauper's like running away like trying to get away from the, the cake and yeah, they got the a, cake at her they've got to cut away soon otherwise yeah. people are going to start you know fighting you that's know, right <laughs> that would truly spoil the Mother's Day party that's right yeah <laughs> so way more fun than I thought yeah it's a, you know be. if you read like Mother's Day party it sounds so bad but yeah it's yeah. some really good laughs yeah for but sure. I, actually I think I enjoyed it so much more now being you know yeah. a middle-aged man than I did even as a kid. That's right. Quite frankly. Because, <laughs> yeah, when you watch that as a kid, you're like, why couldn't we have had another match instead of this? You know, like... <laughs> yeah, but, but um, yeah. Every, all these performers are just, like, doing their their promo comedy gold. Yeah, so we get the traditional closeout from McMahon and Jesse. And one of the things I always remembered with Saturday's Man Event is they would take, like, multiple commercial breaks in the last couple of minutes. Like, it would just be like, you know, you'd constantly be going to commercial break. And as a kid, when I was recording them, I would, like, pause it, and then it would come back to commercial, and it would just have the Saturday's Man Event screen with the music. And it was actually usually they were using um uh, the song from AHA, Take On Me, would be the little bit of music going over that little, and it would go back to commercial. <laughs> and then it would come back... And you would hear the familiar strains of Phil Collins, Take Me Home. And that's what, you know, that's when you really knew it was over. And yeah. uh, they would usually play highlights, you know, from the show or something like that, re- you know, repeat. Of course, the WWE Network does not have the Phil Collins song. Boo-hoo. Uh, but, uh, you know, we'll live. We know it's there. We hear it. So that's yeah. uh, that takes us through beginning to end your first Saturday night's main event, May 11th, 1985. And we have dozens more, so we hope you enjoyed this, and we'll come back as we cover the second episode. And uh, we are going to do that on a weekly basis. Yeah, we'll try and keep up, try and make sure we're getting an episode every week. We do have some housekeeping to take care of before we completely say goodbye, so uh, we'll do that right now. All right, time to have a little fun with a segment we like to call 
what if? So since we just passed such an important event in WrestleMania, the first WWF real super card, I thought we'd look back and think, what could we have done to maybe improve that card? I don't think they've really had gotten their handle on how to run a super card. Everyone knows that there was a few, let's call them enhancement type matches. So we had Tito Santana versus The Executioner. We had Ricky Steamboat versus Matt Bourne, who is a great performer, but wasn't necessarily seen as a top talent. He was no doink. Or wait, sorry, he was a doink. He will be a doink. <laughs> He'll be that eventually. So one of the first things I always thought about was the Greg Valentine Junkyard Dog Intercontinental title match was a bit of a letdown. It wasn't the greatest match. The outcome's not the greatest. And all the heat, the feud, is with Tito Santana trying to get his belt back. And since they pulled the trigger with this amazing cage match title victory for Santana, not that long after that, what if... Tito Santana had won the Intercontinental title at WrestleMania. That would have been fantastic. Actually, I don't think I've seen that steel cage match. That must have been a Coliseum video or something. Absolutely, yeah. There's a, it, it appears a couple of times. I think they have a cage match video that it's on, and they also have it on like maybe a greatest matches or most unusual matches, but it's it's fantastic. That's something you got to see. Well, uh, I should have seen it. What the hell's the matter with you, Corey? You weren't sharing <laughs> me with those Coliseum videos. I bust your balls all these years later. So another match that I thought would have been neat now, they don't necessarily have an opponent. I looked at the roster, and I'm like, wow, there really wasn't very many tag teams in March of 1985 in the WWF. But one of the recent teams that had been added was the British Bulldogs. I just assumed they weren't there in the Federation, much like Randy Savage. Not, I just thought that the Bulldogs hadn't arrived in the WWF yet. Same with Randy Savage. Neither one of them appear at WrestleMania. Yes, the Bulldogs are around and wrestling by that time. Savage is a little bit later, so he can't be in it. So we're a little bit off. So we saw when we looked, there was just a shortly after WrestleMania, just right around the time of Saturday Night's main event, is when the Hart Foundation gets put together. But could you imagine if the Bookers had figured that out just like a month or two earlier, and we could have had a Hart Foundation versus Bulldogs match at WrestleMania 1? Oh, that would have been amazing. Near miss. Instead of like watered down Danny Davis Tito Santana well, we never, throw them into we the never got what we wanted <laughs> we'll get to that one of these days but yeah it would have given us a chance to see like a really great tag team match and I think like it would have gone down and been remembered as one of the best matches on the card I'm sure like you know there's no question of that another part that I thought was maybe missing was Don Morocco's not on the card and why I think that's interesting is because coming out of this Wrestlemania he has all these really important title matches against Hogan he has two back-to-back Madison Square Garden matches against Hogan, and you think they would have at least wanted him on the card to maybe get him a win, push him a little bit better, or we also knew there was a Steamboat Morocco feud going. Now, maybe, no, we, we didn't want to stop Steamboat's momentum, and obviously we don't want to stop Morocco's momentum, but maybe some sort of a non definitive match between the two of them would have been more enjoyable than Steamboat's win over Matt Bourne. I had no idea that Morocco had such a title chase with Hogan going around that era. Yeah, they, they gave him several title matches, and like that, like I said, they had a really big match, and the, the return was a cage match. Wow. And Hogan bladed. Of course, uh, wow. I mean, the exception being that we will review Morocco and Hogan in the short future, because that sets up WrestleMania 2. Of course, yeah. That's, that hasn't happened yet. No. So those are just some fantasy ideas. So if you're listening and you have any ideas of how they could have made WrestleMania a better card, you can email us at legendarywrestlingobsession at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your ideas, and we'll talk about them in a future episode. We want to thank you again for coming back and joining us for this episode. Hopefully you're on along for the ride. A long ride, that is. 
And like I said, there's a few things we want to pass along, just the information of how to help us. One of the things we've learned as we post this stuff is getting your material out there is easy. Having people find it's a little bit more difficult. So while we are attached to basically every single podcast platform, with the exception of Apple Podcasts, which currently has some sort of error they can't figure out for me, it'll be on there soon, hopefully, it doesn't show up in the directory. So basically, if you look up sports and wrestling, you're probably not going to find us. But if you type in our name, then you do. So we're trying to figure out how to you know, work around those limitations. And we're really limited by that. So if you like this show, if you know us, if you feel anything for us, uh, you know, help share this information with people. If you know wrestling fans, pass it along. Because like I said, if they go looking, you know, if they go randomly looking, they're probably not going to find us. So go and search Legendary Wrestling <laughs> legendary wrestling obsession legendary wrestling obsession legendary wrestling obsession legendary wrestling <laughs> Jeff's take on our, our our favorite song there uh so yeah so again our home our home base is at podbean.com so if you can't find us legendary wrestling obsession.podbean.com is a great place to go and any other platform right now other than Apple you can search us and you should find us uh, if you really want to help the show out, if you really want to support the show, then there's something called Patreon. And that's somewhere you can go and support the show, actually sign up. There's a couple of different levels of support you can do. So it's a way to give us a tiny bit of money uh, to help us pay for things like you know hosting the site and trying to upgrade our equipment and all that stuff. So you're looking at Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash Legendary Wrestling Obsession. And that'll take you to that page, and you'll be able to get stuff there. Money, 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 <laughs> money, money. <laughs> People signed up on Patreon will have access to our bonus content. So around once a month or more, we'll be releasing these bonus episodes. And as we've mentioned, we've already recorded several of them, and we'll continue to record more. Also, people on Patreon will have the opportunity to shape the show, to give us ideas of like what bonus content we should be recording. So if you want to help out in any way, that's a good way to do it. Yeah, and did you know that uh, Nick Bockwinkle was considered for the Million Dollar Man role? Wow. Yeah. It, like, yeah. Jeez. Instead, he retired. He retired, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Everybody has a price. Patreon. <laughs> Everybody wants to get paid. Patreon. <laughs> Awesome. I had never heard that one before. That's a great way to end it. So we're going to come back next week with the second edition, the second episode of Saturday Night's Main Event. Take care. Bye-bye for now. Saturday.